Hey everybody, I just want to take a moment to talk about a new thing I'm doing. Over the years, many of you have reached out to me telling me how much you love the podcast, but also wish there were more personalized takeaways and more in-depth interactions with our guests to hear what they think about comedy. This is why I'm now launching my new digital academy, Blueprint for Success. With exclusive interviews and comedy philosophies of stars and industry veterans, personalized versions of the Industry Standard podcast, commercial-free, and one-on-one coaching time with me. Blueprint for Success will give you the powerful tools that will take you up the elevator beyond the competition and reach the highest possible levels to achieve your dreams. Whether it be stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, hosting, radio podcasting, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or an agent. Now I'm here to help, personally. We'll go on an express train of comedy and entertainment like nobody else has before. You can find out more about Blueprint for Success and the comedy business on my website at barrycats.com. Together, we'll take your career where you want it to go. You are about to listen to an original episode of Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of upcoming shows, which will be available for download every Monday, or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to barrykatz.com. After you finish the podcast, please take a moment to subscribe to it, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it sucks. Thank you for your support, and enjoy the show. Welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard, and I am extremely excited about today's show because I am with uh, Gavin Pallone, and this is a guy who um, I've known for a long, long time, and I, I tend to these podcasts, I tend to not be as serious about things all the time. I mean, I'm very serious about the podcast, I'm very serious about the message, and but I, you know, there's a little humor laced in. But when I sit across from Gavin Pallone, every time I've been across from Gavin Pallone, even though he's very funny and he has a very dry sort of way about him, very serious. Mm-hmm. It's like it's like you you sit across from this guy and it's like literally you think to yourself, "There's a new sheriff in town. Mm-hmm. This guy is going to uh, basically crush me like a bug." So basically, I get that because you have this way about you, this presence that's really incredible, and it's very, very, it's it's almost like very presidential in a contemplated, casual way. Hmm. And so um, what I want to share with you is really the first time I ever got to meet Gavin Pallone uh, really extensively. I had seen him in passing at uh, a company was at at the time when I was starting in the business, uh, a UTA United Talent Agency, which is uh, still in existence, and he was a big, big part of. But the time that I got to see Gavin uh, really and talk to him was on the set of the pilot of the uh, critically acclaimed, which normally means uh, shut down, and uh, basically America said, we're not going to watch that. That's what critically acclaimed normally means. Uh-huh. 
uh, show action. I believe you were a producer on that, Barry, weren't you? I was an executive producer on that. Uh, there was a shocking thing about this thing. You being an executive producer on shows in the past, you know, and Gavin knows all about this. When I started being a manager, one of the things I really wanted to be in that side of the business, but I realized I couldn't be unless I aligned myself with great talent who wanted me next to them or wanted me around and wanted me to help in some way. And when we were doing the deal for action, what was really interesting about Jay Moore at the time was a star. He didn't really care about being an executive producer or any kind of producer, which he could have been because he knew that this was a role where he needed to give us all to and he wanted to make sure it was a really hard acting role in the dialogue. Sometimes there was like three, four pages of dialogue, just him. And he wanted to make sure that he delivered properly and he wanted somebody looking out for him. And he said, listen, I want you to do this. It was the first time I was ever given that opportunity. And one of the most amazing things about it is that the people on the set, the late Ted Demi, Don Rio, who had created uh, uh, Blossom and My Wife and Kids and has done so many different things, Chris Thompson, who I think we could all argue uh, very vehemently is a tortured genius, uh, which at the time he had created two shows that had gotten on the air and he was walking across the soundstage to each one. One was Ladies Man with Alfred Molina mm -hmm. for CBS and one was Action for Fox. And when we're doing the pilot for Action, something strange happened as I was working on it with Jay and the other people you know, what happens is, is you get emailed or you get sent a call sheet for the pilot each day. And, and action was like a single camera. It's like doing a movie only for about, I think they worked on it for eight days, that particular one. And because I was new at it, I wasn't involved in all the creative decisions or what were happening. A lot of times I just get the call sheet. And I remember this one morning I saw the call sheet. And I looked on the call sheet, and it had Gavin Pallone's name on it. Oh, so you didn't know that I was going to be in it? until I had no oh, idea. Really? Uh -huh. And so I look at it, and I'm like, oh, well, he must be a producer on the show, or he must be some kind of uh, doing something. And then I looked on the call sheet, and it was like he was like number, you know, seven or something like that. Mm -hmm. And it was a role of an agent who was going to be going into Jay's office. And I remember the role from the pilot, but I thought they were going to hire a an actor who was... Uh, well, it was kind of written to be Ari Emanuel. And, and I think that... Th I, I got to believe that Chris tried to get Ari. I might be wrong, but I think he did. It could be. I think Ari was his agent at the time. It could be. Mm -hmm. So I was, like, shocked that you were doing it because I thought to myself, everybody had always told me throughout my career that, hey, listen, the clients come first, you put yourself in the background, and that was one of the difficult things about starting this podcast because I wanted to do something special. I wanted to do something that was inspirational, but people told me that if I do it, clients are going to be disappointed because they don't want to know that you're doing something during your spare time that isn't involving them. They want to know that you're working for them. But I always felt that these conversations not only help them and the relationships help them, but helped other people as well. So anyway, so I see Gavin's name on the call sheet and I'm thinking to myself, 
God, this is kind of weird. You know, how is this guy who really doesn't seem to have any acting experience, how is he going to come on the set? Or, or talent. Or talent <laughs> and do something special. And it really struck me. And it, it actually, I want to give you props in the, give Gavin props in this cold open. Because I really believe that that moment planted a seed in my head that eventually laid dormant for 20 years Mm -hmm. until I started this podcast because I saw that you had a passion for something when you were on the set and you know when you're doing these shows you do many many takes from different angles especially when you're doing single camera because you have to shoot it like it's a film and so you're doing this scene that's probably two minutes long, and it, it most likely took half a day. Uh, knowing the way they were shooting, it could have taken the whole day. And so you're watching how this man works and the process of how he works, and he really got it, and he was passionate about it. And I, I got done with it, and I took him aside, and I said, I don't know how to tell you this, but you're a phenomenal actor. <laughs> And he said, so not true, and he said something like, "That's so not true," or he said something, you know, downplaying himself. But for our audience, who will only hear this right now, uh, I thought it'd be interesting if I played that scene for Gavin right now and played it for our audience. So that's what I'm going to do right now. Suppose I could deliver you a star so big that little children in the crap-infested streets of Calcutta know his name. Cody, I'm eating spring rolls. Sorry, but suppose I could deliver this huge star, I mean a guy better known than Tom Hanks, and you'd only have to pay him scale. Who is it? Well, he's a very complicated client. Who is? I can't tell you. Can you give me a hint? He's had some legal problems. Drugs? Is it Robert Downey Jr.? No, Pete, my man's clean. Straight arrow, strong, healthy. Can you give me a bigger hint? Well... He was falsely accused of a double murder. Now, because of the potential PR problems, my agency can't officially represent him. You're pitching me, O.J. Simpson. Yes, I am. Pete, little children in Calcutta know his face. Yes, they know to run away from it. The name is more recognizable than Tom Hanks. Okay, you know what? But to be fair, Tom Hanks refuses to go that extra mile and hack his wife to death. He was acquitted, man! Pete, with all due respect, someone's gonna put him in something, and people are gonna want to see him. Sure, at first is a curiosity, but I think they're gonna be pleasantly surprised with his acting chops. Now, he's been studying with a coach. I recently saw him do a monologue from Raisin in the Sun. Really? How was that? Truthfully, it was very moving. Cody? Yeah? Get out. How about a villain? He'll play a villain. Come on! Who's scarier? You're scarier. Come on, Peter. Just the shock value sells a million tickets, and he's going to bargain basement raids. Hey, Pete, do you play golf? You know what? I think I just threw up, like, inside my throat. Get out, please. Okay, but just a word of warning. The guys at Fox are all over him. God, he's a good agent. And the scene ends with... God, he's a great agent. Uh, I've seen that a few times recently because every time I'm, you know, if I'm producing something, some somebody on the set finds it on YouTube and then and then goes and uh, and plays it. I, I'm actually not that bad. I have to say, I, I I've seen myself in other things where I'm really terrible, but in that particular thing, I think that I really understood the character. Yes, and I believe this was uh, Gavin's first 
thing ever that he ever did. And he showed me that he had a passion for certain things. And I think the lesson here is I sit across from Gavin Pallone, if you followed his career and you know what he's done throughout being an agency partner, throughout being a person who was fighting to get his pilot on the air and fighting to get press, throughout his management company days, throughout representing people who are geniuses like... Conan O'Brien and, and Larry David to producing movies and television shows that have gone to syndication and writing pieces uh, for established, really respected magazines and doing these different things as well as acting, I realized that the lesson to me when I sit across from Gavin Pallone is, and to everybody out there, if you have a passion for something and you're just doing one thing, sometimes people tell you all the time, just go with whatever it is, find your lane and go with it. But I think for me, the lesson when I sit across from Gavin is the fact that don't always believe that you only have one lane. Because chances are you have multiple talents, multiple things you can work on. And these are things that can not only expand your horizon, expand your career, but it can expand your inspiration to the world. Here we go in three, two. We ain't one at a time in here. We're mass communicating. This show will have laughter. I got everybody pregnant with Barry Katz and semen. Infections caused by jacuzzi water. I'm not comfortable with the tone this is taking. Okay, here we go. Is there anything else I should know? You're on. What? Now I'm on the air! People on Twitter have been asking for Barry Katz to come back a lot. If you're undeniable, you will not be denied. If you want to be successful in showbiz and you get yourself a Jew white manager like Barry Katz. Here we go. You're fucking firing me up, Katz. Being a manager is just turning no's into yeses. Undeniable. Creating holy shit moments. I love this man. Barry Katz. Back in the house. 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 Let's do this. Hey, everybody. Let me remind you one more time about my new blueprint for success. It's a project I've spent months and months working on just to help you jumpstart your comedy career and beat the competition. Whether you want to do stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, radio, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or agent, Blueprint for Success will give you all the tools you need to take your career to the highest levels. With exclusive interviews, my top 50 commercial-free episodes from Industry Standard, one-on-one coaching with me, and unprecedented access into my knowledge and experience from over 40 years in this crazy business. I guarantee you that with Blueprint for Success, you'll become the creator you've always dreamed of becoming. No one's asking me to do this. I want to do it because I want to help you become truly undeniable. So just go to BarryCats.com, click on Blueprint for Success, and start your incredible journey today. I truly can't wait to work with you to help you change the trajectory of your comedy career forever. Welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard with me, 
Barry Katz, very excited today. My guest today uh, probably needs no introduction, but I'm going to give him one anyway. As far as all the guests I've ever had on this program, and I've had a lot of great guests, I don't think there's anybody that I've had who has done more different things successfully than Gavin Pallone. So I'm going to tell you a little bit about him. It's going to be a little bit long. He may fall asleep on the couch, but I am going to give him the proper introduction. It's okay. You're, you're going through my favorite topic, so go. I'll, I'll Your favorite topic. I will stay interested. Is you. <laughs> you know, I always say, you know, I don't like dating because I don't like hearing my life story over and over again. But anyway, at 22 years old, Gavin Pallone was already bored with being an assistant at ICM. So he applied to join the CIA, who turned him down. Probably the only time that anybody ever passed on him. Reading Variety online one afternoon, he saw a story about a potential network pickup for the fall TV season. Uh, which failed to mention his NBC pilot dots, D period, O period, T period, S period. What did he do? He instantly picked up the phone and called Variety and the reporter and complained. The next day, Pallone's show was a big story, and that's because of his persistence. Let me tell you a little bit about him. Uh, I told you he began his career as an, uh, as an assistant at ICM, but he left there and he went to join Bauer Benedek, a leading boutique agency, which evolved into United Talent Agency, where Pallone was made partner at the young age of 29. While at UTA, he served as head of the talent department until abandoning his career as an agent in 1996, which we'll talk about, when he partnered with Judy Hufflin to form Hufflin Pallone, a talent management and production company. Through that company, he became an executive producer on the Emmy-nominated HBO series Curb Your Enthusiasm, as well as the CW's Gilmore Girls, which I believe went more than 150 episodes. In the summer of 2001, Pallone formed the production company Pariah, which was named after something he believes he represents. He produced numerous television shows under that banner, including Revelations for NBC, Tell Me You Love Me for HBO, My Boys for TBS, The Bachelor Party for Oxygen, and Jane by Design and Twisted for ABC Family. In feature films, Gavin has produced When Trumpets Fade for HBO, Drop Dead Gorgeous for New Line, Stir of Echoes for Artisan, love that, Premium Rush, Panic Room, which I believe made over $200 million worldwide, uh, Secret Window and Zombieland for Columbia Pictures, uh, and the independent features Conan O'Brien Can't Stop and Seeing Other People, starring Jay Moore, I remember that, Little Manhattan and My Super Ex-Girlfriend, which I happen to love for New Regency and 20th Century Fox, Primeval for Disney, Ghost Town for DreamWorks, Pallone has also, get this, directed, yes, there's more that he does, multiple episodes of Jane by Design and Twisted. And more importantly, recently he's written numerous unbelievable articles for publications like The Hollywood Reporter, GQ, and he currently writes a regular column for New York Magazine that you must check out. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome my guest today. I am so excited about it, Gavin Pallone. Thank you for having me, Barry. All right. I'm so glad you're here. I feel here. so validated. You know, before I walked in, I'm like, oh, I'm such a loser. And then you go through that whole thing, hey, I'm not that bad, am I? <laughs> I know the people listening sometimes who are in studio apartments somewhere in the world thinking, how am I going to get my life going? They look in the mirror sometimes and they think, God, I'm such a loser. I'm never going to get something going. 
Could you let our audience know how it's possible for somebody to do as many things as you've done and still get up and look in the mirror sometimes and think, you know what, I just, I haven't done what I want. I haven't done it all yet. I feel like I'm, I'm not valid. Because it's about perspective. Everybody, you know, loses perspective. It's kind of the human condition. But in a certain way, that drives us forward to say, look, I want to succeed. Um, that's a primordial desire that we all have. And part of the impetus to do that is to think we don't have enough. And, you know, I think it, it makes us crazy in some regard. And at the same time, it probably makes us successful. If you feel like I'm not doing as well as that other guy, if I don't feel like I've produced enough movies or I don't like my writing, or I don't think that some other part of my life is as good as it can be, I'm driven forward partially by that um, skewed perspective that I haven't been successful enough. And you can always find somebody else to compare yourself to who's done better, you know? And I think also if you do stuff like uh, I do where I want to do a lot of different things because I find that most enjoyable and I'm not focused on any one thing, um, I'm probably going to do okay in those lot of things because I'm not, I'm dividing my time and attention and maybe less good, uh, in any one of them. But, but at the same time, you know, I'd rather have it be that way. I know that if I pull out and I have a wider perspective, but when you get narrow and you go, you see somebody who produces a movie who I think is untalented and then that's successful. And you're like, oh, why don't I, why am I not more successful at that or, or, or any of a number of things? I think that when I used to work, something you don't know about me, I used to work with disabled kids and adults when mm. I was a teenager for like five years until I was 20. And I work with some of the most severely disabled kids and adults. And you'd have kids literally, I mean, I work with a kid who had no arms and no legs and used to go swimming. I don't know how he did it. And he'd look around and I could tell he was looking around saying, hey, there's a kid who's worse off than me. There's right. a kid that's better off than me. Mm -hmm. And I remember that and I thought, God, is this true in business? Mm -hmm. And now... As I'm in it, I realize, yes, it is. Mm -hmm. And so you, you've talked a lot about this in a lot of your articles about the trajectory of business. But before we get into that, I want to go way, way back, if you don't mind. Sure. So take me back to where you grew up, what your family life was like, and what was your first inspiration to say, I want to be in the entertainment business? Uh, I grew up in Encino. Um, my parents were divorced when I was about 13, 14. I lived with my father and he moved to Beverly Hills. Now that's a critical time, 13, 14. It was liberating to me. I didn't like my mother. I didn't like my sister. I wanted more freedom. Uh, I was going to a school I didn't really want to go to. And then my parents' divorce kind of freed me of all of that. I was going to a private school I didn't like. And my father, you know, we moved. I was able to get out of that private school because he did not because he was thinking, oh, this is better for for my son. He was just thinking it was cheaper for me to go to public school, which was which was better for me. Um, in the end, so you went to public school. I went to public school. And I went to, well, I went to Beverly Hills High School. I'm not going to say that I went to some kind of I didn't go downtown somewhere, <laughs> you know. Um, but who were some of the kids at Beverly Hills High School that are in, in the business today? Oh, in my class. Um, uh, it's funny cause there's, there's a, there's a bunch of them, like not people that were necessarily my friends, but, uh, Nicholas Cage was in my class and, um, there are other people, you know, whose names I don't want to mention that I'm not friendly with, but you know, there's a lot of people from the entertainment business that went to, that I went to school with. Um, but I didn't want to be in the entertainment industry. I had no, I really had no interest in that. And I didn't, 
I almost, I, even after I was in it, I wasn't interested in it. Um, when I, I went to college, I was planning on getting into real estate and, uh, I, does, did, an, does anyone go to college for real estate? I only went to college because my father said I had to go to college, and I just wanted to get out as soon as possible, so I graduated in three years. During my last year in college, I took my real estate broker's you know, test, and, and I passed it, and after I went on you know, the, the, you know, a, a trip with a friend, uh, I came back to Los Angeles, and I was living in my father's apartment. And it was dismal, and I had uh, applied for a job at Colwell Banker to be a real estate agent, which is what I had really wanted to do. Now I had studied film in college, mostly just because I like movies. Not, Where'd you go to college? Uh, UC Berkeley, and so not for any other reason than that. And um, you know, my mother, who I was not that close to, but she made TV movies, so she was sort of tangentially in the, or she was in the entertainment business. And she said, "Well, why don't you?" Why don't you think, consider it? I mean, you studied film and I thought, oh, maybe, but I really want to be in real estate. And she had a friend of hers meet with me who, uh, a man named Jeff Sagansky, who's, who's very course. important executive and still is today. Where was he at the time? He was the president of TriStar Pictures. Got him. And I went and met with him and I said, I don't know, maybe I would want to be like a script reader or something on the way to being an executive. And he said, you should be a, a talent agent. That's where you learn everything. They're at the center of the business. I was like, oh, okay. So then I got a meeting at the William Morris agency just to sort of follow up on that. I think what's fascinating, I'm sorry to interrupt, but this is what's interesting about your life so far that, that, that people don't realize sometimes. You grow up and you have no control over where you're born, who your parents are, where you live. It just happens. Mm -hmm. And you said you had a divorce that happened when you were 13. You have no control over that. Uh, you believe it's a great thing because you get to go with your dad and get away a little bit from your mom, oh, who you're not, you're not getting so along great. with. No, I think, and, and he gave me a moped. I mean, he did everything wrong, like the things you shouldn't do with a kid. I'm four, 13, 14 years old, I have a moped. I didn't have a helmet. I, he didn't ever pay attention to how late I was. I come home at two in the morning. He didn't pay attention. It's like basically I just had a roommate. And then I got <laughs> to get out of this old boy's school I was going to and go be in a school with girls. I was like, it, it was unbelievable how much my life had improved. And But this is the thing that's, <clears throat> to me, that's really fascinating. Your mom, who you weren't really getting along with, who wasn't really inspiring you, and your dad, who gave you that freedom, it was actually your mom that made the introduction into this business and why we're listening to you and why you've had such a long career is because everybody needs that one introduction into the affiliation. Mm -hmm. And she put you in front of a guy who was the president of TriStar Pictures. Yeah. And for those of you listening, if you're anybody in the business and you think you can get an interview or a meeting with somebody from the president of TriStar or any organization, it's like literally one in a hundred thousand shot that you're going to get that meeting if you've never done anything in your life. And let me stop you right here. I will not meet with anybody who calls me and says, hey, I know that you got your break because you got this meeting with Jeff Sagansky, so why don't you pay it back and meet with me? And I will not do that, Barry. I know. I'm telling anybody listening, I will not. <laughs> don't call my office. Don't try to, you know, send me a message on Facebook. Now, don't why wait is outside that? my building. It will not happen. Why is that? Uh, you know, first you of like all, pay it if I had, if I had to do it over again, I would have just 
kept on my path and gotten into real estate. I think that would have been much better. <laughs> uh, well, every real estate agent I know is about, uh, you know, between the ages of 40 and dead. So I think you can actually go into it now if you I'm want in, to. That'll be the seventh I, thing I'm you've done. In, I'm, that you're I'm gonna... actually between those ages, too, Barry. Um, <laughs> I, well, also, you know, here, here's actually what ended up happening was I went and had this meeting at the William Morris Agency, and I met with some super arrogant guy who was telling me, like, most people wash out of their training program and, you know, we only take the best of the best and, you know, you're going to work for like $280 a week and uh, 14 hours a day and all of that. And I was really unimpressed with the whole thing and I just said, forget it. So... I wasn't, I was just planning on going. Do you, do you want to explain what the training room and the training program is at William Morris if you haven't at read William Morris, books? And I think these things still, still exist at the major agencies, although I think there is some limits to how they work people or whether the, how, maybe they pay them a little better now. But basically they got sort of slave labor back then where you'd work your ass off for no money. You start in the mail room and you deliver packages and you, back then you copied scripts which were typed on a typewriter back then, <laughs> you know, so there was a lot of, there was a lot more um, manual labor that was involved in the business because we didn't have things like the internet. And, uh, and, and so they would, you know, hire these people, a lot of whom, you know, came out of really good colleges, kind of a combination of people who were high achieving and um, people who were related to someone important. Those are the people that generally got into those programs. So I, uh, uh, I didn't want to do that. And, um, I, and then you would work your way up, then you'd become an assistant to somebody. And then ideally, if you'd done that long enough, maybe you'd get to be, you know, three, four years later, you, they'd promote you to being a talent agent or they'd fire you. So, uh, but you would get a good education in the entertainment industry. That is true. And what Jeff said was true that the, the agency business is the center of the business in terms of the flow of information. So I didn't want to do it, and I was going to just go forward and become a real estate agent. And I went to a party at a friend's house, and his her uncle, who I had met before, had been a movie producer, though he hadn't really been working that much at, around that time. And his wife was a talent agent at a small agency. And I became friendly with her. And then we were there, and uh, I told them my whole story. And they said, no, you should definitely go into the agency business. And I said, ah, no, that guy was an asshole, and you know, I want to be in real estate, and this sounds stupid, and I'm not interested in then about, you know, I was waiting for my, my meeting, which was very far in the future for me, like three, four weeks in the future. And I was waiting for this meeting at, at, at Colwell Banker to become a real estate agent. And um, that woman, whose name was Marcy Glenn, uh, called me at home at like 1030 in the morning and woke me up because that, I had nothing to do. And she said, hey, I'm going to, I'm leaving my small agency to go be a, an agent at ICM. Do you want to come be my assistant? And I said, uh, I don't know how to type. And she said, well, you can learn how to type. And I said, uh... Okay. You know, what's odd is that's probably the last time you ever woke up at 1030 in the morning. <laughs> probably. And, uh, sh and, you know, I just went and took the job because I didn't have a job and someone was willing to pay me and I wanted to get the hell out of my, uh, my father's apartment, basically. And so I took the job. But I, I still didn't really think that was where I was going to be. I thought I was going to end up doing something else. I thought I just needed a job because I didn't have, all my friends were still in school. I graduated from college early and I just had nothing else to do. And then and when were I, her clients in the literary world or in the no, acting they were actors, world? like her biggest client was Stephanie Zimbalist, who was on Remington Steel at the time. So she represented the more, cause this is a weird thing that people don't understand. And normally it's not the bigger agencies, but normally there's a really interesting boutique business in representing actors who are like that, who are 
have been doing it like 20, 30, 40 years and you have that group of clients and you're known as the go-to person for that group of people. Mm-hmm. Um, not to say that it's always the most respected way to go, but that's a lot of uh, things mm-hmm. happen for people like that. Yeah. So I went to work there and I didn't really like it. And they didn't have the mailroom system that they had at William Morris. So the people, most of the people who just worked on people's desks were, you know, people who, that's their job. And it was, that was my job. That's interesting that ICM didn't have the mailroom because they were <laughs> obviously one of the top five agencies at the time back then, even. No, they were top, there was three. Three, yeah. yeah. And they, um, yeah, they didn't do that. Uh, although down the road, they eventually, you know, picked up that model. But the people at the time I worked there worked in the mailroom. That was their job. That was their profession, a professional mailroom kind of person. Uh, so anyway, I kind of just thought I would go along with that and see what happened and maybe eventually transition, get some somewhere in the real estate thing, come back to it. But when I got there, I did realize that it would be better. And I think Marcy told me this to at least say that I wanted to be a talent agent because you'd be treated with more respect rather than someone who was just a secretary. I didn't want to be someone's secretary when I was, you know, I just turned 21 years old. And, uh, and so I did that and, uh, I used to work hard and stay late because I had no friends because all my friends were still in college. So they, that made, that made me stand out a little bit more. Um, and then it always does. Yeah. And then, uh, I still was looking to get out. I just couldn't, I didn't like it. And that's, you know, as you mentioned, I applied to the CIA. I, I then try to get jobs at, at an, I try to get a job at Warner Brothers in the t, in their TV movie department. I got dinged for that. I didn't happen. It didn't happen. I, I almost uh, came very close to getting a job at ABC in the current department. Didn't get it. Here's an interesting question. And so I was kind of like stuck. <laughs> Why do you think, you know, they, Bernie Brillstein used to say that people in his profession were un, you know, they were just unhirable. Mm-hmm. What do you think it was about? your interviewing skills or style where you, I'm not saying you interviewed for the CIA, that was probably an application, but another area. No, I had an interview. Oh, so. I got past the interview stage. That wasn't where I, I, I just didn't have any skills that they were looking for when I. So in other words, you think you were a great interviewer, but you just didn't have the skill set. For the CIA? And the other things that you... Well, it was a little different. For the CIA, I think they were looking for native speakers of a language. Like, I mean, I had a good interview, and then I went and took the test, and they told me I scored highly on the test. But when I went to the test, which was held at UCLA, a proctored test, most everybody in the room was obviously either first-generation American or had been born in some other country. So I think they were looking for somebody who was, uh, who was from Thailand who spoke fluent Thai that they could then place in, Thai, in Thailand. Or they were people with buzz cuts who were clearly in the military. And then there was me with you know, shoulder-length long hair and a beard. So you know, it didn't really look right. Um, but in the, for the other things, uh, actually, no, I came really close to getting the jobs. It's just I was, I don't even know if I was 22 yet or I maybe turned 22. So the people I, were up, I was up against had a lot more experience and I just didn't get those jobs. I might have if I had hung in longer, but I decided to apply myself and and try to see if I could get to be an agent so that I could then still transition out. I didn't want to be an agent at that time because I had worked for, I worked for Marcy for a period of time, which was kind of unfulfilling. And I moved over and worked for uh, another agent in the literary department who represented mostly writers um, named Howie Klein, who I'm sure you know. Who became a manager and a partner at Three Arts. Yeah. Great guy. And so you were on his desk, and that's when you started reading scripts for the first time. Yeah, I read a lot of scripts, and I would I would summarize those scripts for Howie. 
And I, he also, I mean, he gave me a lot of responsibility, which was terrific. Um, and he, I would, again, I was working really late. I got to be the departmental assistant, which put me sort of in the mix with the other agents and the, and the head of the department, because I would be the one taking notes in the meeting, which was very different back then because as you remember, and probably a lot of the people who <laughs> listen to this podcast don't know, like we didn't have computers and there were computers in the world, but it's like ICM didn't have them. So I would have to type. So you would do a, you would do a status um, document of every project out there. And then everybody would talk about who was being submitted for what project, you know, so what writers were being submitted for Hunter or Heart to Heart or something like that. And and today you would just go, they would make changes on it. Oh, here's what they're looking for a producer. They're looking for a story editor level person. And you would type that up on your computer and it would take you like four minutes to make the changes after you did it, or you just do it there in the meeting. I would have to write everything down and then go back and stay there till 1030 at night, retyping the whole 16 page document because we didn't have a computer. You for know? Gavin, a multi-million dollar company who has since gone out of business would be the whiteout company. Oh, I use tons of whiteout and the, you know, the tape and all of that stuff. So, uh, so, you know, I got, I got a lot of experience and also because Howie would actually give me like his clients contracts and ask me to read them over and give him notes on it, which was great. So I really learned about, you know, contracts and negotiating. It's, I think to this day, still talent agents have their assistants listening in on phone calls. Um, which I always felt was a very kind of suspect practice, but you really learn, you know, everything about the business that way. And so I think I, what's I it, it is a weird practice and it happens all the time. They used to have the phones, if you remember, Gavin, that you on the handset, they'd have like a little switch on it where you could press it and you mm -hmm. could listen or not listen. And I always thought that it was so, so weird because, you know, you're doing something that's illegal. You know, I don't think Nicolas Cage wants the assistant listening on the phone, but it's not said, hey, Nicholas, uh, by the way, I have my assistant on the phone with me. Right. It's just they're always listening, and I think it's a violation oh. of privacy tremendously, but every agency did it. Oh, and still does it. Every, people still do it. Actually, it's also more interesting is that even later than that, after, and this, when I started as an assistant, I think people, nobody had cell phones even yet. But then they had the ones the size of a brick. Yeah, there was a couple. I remember at ICM, Jeff Berg had the Wall one of those. Street. He, uh, he had those I'm gigantic cell phones. But eventually, everybody got cell phones and had cell phones in their car. And you would have your assistant run calls for you while you're on the phone. So you would call into the your office, and the assistant would just go from one call to the other. But they didn't have back then the technology to cut off each individual call. So sometimes, <laughs> and you probably remember this, like I actually uh, would just stay, you know, after I became an agent, I would, he would hold on to some people's calls. And so um, this is really, you know, I, I'm hoping he doesn't listen to your podcast or find out, but I remember a couple of times Jeff Katzenberg would call me and then I would talk to him and get off and then. But I would just hit mute and I would listen to Jeff Katzenberg's calls for half an hour Guilty. and just keep listening to everything that was going on with Jeff Katzenberg. <laughs> and I I'm also know, I will also say uh, there's another agent in, if he listens to your podcast, he'll know who he is, who would listen to the head of a, of a major studio, continue to run his calls and then heard an inappropriate conversation between him and his assistant, who he was obviously having an affair with. This was a married guy. Um, so <laughs> that, that was a lot of fun back then. You know, technology <laughs> has really taken the fun out of the entertainment business, I have to tell you. <laughs> That's fantastic.
That's great. Jeffrey Katzenberg, one of my favorite quotes of his, if you don't come in Saturday, don't bother coming in on Sunday. And it's true. Which yeah. is uh, true of your career because yeah. you you got there early, you stayed late, and that's how you gain people's trust and Howie's trust. And so what happened after that? Uh, I just was totally sick of it. After I'd been an assistant for about 15 months, I just couldn't take anymore, which isn't a long time. And I sort of just set a time limit for myself that whatever the end of the year was, if I don't get promoted, I'm going to leave. Now, did you, that, did you ask, did you go to Howie, uh, at Klein and say, Howie, you know, I've been here for three years. I had been I there only, wondering. I'd only been there 15 months. I was very impatient. Oh, 15 months. <laughs> yeah. But did you go to him and say like, uh, when do you think I'll, I might be promoted or did you just keep it to yourself? No, I would talk to Howie about it, you know, to the extent that I could, but Howie, Howie was supportive. It wasn't, and he wasn't really fully up to him. So it was really about the head of the department, you know, agreeing that I could get promoted. But in the interim period, they created a training program and they had not a, they didn't go to the mailroom kind of model. But at that particular point, they just said, we got to have our own training program. And so they sort of decided that they would make one assistant. They take one assistant from each department, like from the motion picture talent department, the TV talent department, the TV lit department, which was what I was in and uh, and whatever else. And they would make, you know, each of those people the uh, the trainee. And I got made the trainee for the television lit department, but they didn't have anything for us to do. So I just I got a I, I got an office on a lower floor. And I was put in an office, and I shared it with a woman named Carol Bodie, if you know her. Of course. And she was Steve Dauntonville's assistant, and we we were just in this office, and it's like, well, what are we going to do? Like, they didn't tell us what to do. So we just became, we just made ourselves agents, in a sense. And so I signed people. Nobody asked me or told me what I was supposed to do. And Carol did the same thing. So she'd have her little actor clients, and I'd have people who would just send in scripts, and I signed a friend of mine's boyfriend and things like that. And then I'd call, I'd have all the information about where, what projects were looking for writers and where you could sell stuff. I mean, I'd been listening, and I knew what to do. And then what we would do, because we didn't have an assistant or anything like that, but to make ourselves look official, Carol and I would answer each other's phones. So Carol would go, Gavin Plone's office, and I would say, Carol Bodie's office. So it seemed like Carol Bodie had you know, an assistant, and I, it would seem like I had an assistant, which would make us legitimate. And slowly I would sign a few people, and eventually those people got jobs. Um, Who was the first client of yours to get a job? Before you answer that, I just want to let our audience know, Carol Bodie is a great agent uh, at ICM. She represented a variety of great film stars, and you know, one of her biggest clients at the time, I remember, was Winona Ryder mm -hmm. and Steve Dautenville. John uh, Hamm she represented. Mr. That's right. And Steve Dautenville was, you know, I mean, probably one of the greatest uh agents there oh, ever yeah. was yeah, so a lot of great people so i just wanted to say that before you went on and uh yeah so you know we started doing that but then at some point they did promote me and i was made an agent uh pretty soon after that and you know what they do is they give you <clears throat> territory to cover so i had tv studios that i'd have to go cover my problem was i really wasn't a social person and I what it was really hard and they and and there's not a lot of hand holding, hey, let me teach you how to do this at that time at ICM. So uh, you know, I'm supposed to make phone calls, I'm supposed to kind of like somehow find my own clients, although it's unsaid, and I'm supposed to be pitching other people's clients. And I would get really nervous. Like I remember calling my the first person I called who was a TV movie writer to see if they'd be interested in something my signing them and 
I was just, I was sweating and I would look at the phone and I wouldn't dial it and then I'd eventually do it and I just panicked out of my mind. And even when I would go have to have lunch, you know, you have to go out and you have a, you have an expense account and you have to go take the buyers to lunch. So you go find, you know, you go to lunch with a producer or a studio executive or a network executive. I'd be like, I don't know what to say. I wouldn't know what to talk about. Cause you know, you have like a couple minutes of, well, what projects are you looking for writers on? And that takes like four minutes. Now I got to sit at lunch with somebody. I don't know how to do that. And I remember back then, you know, like an early, you know, uh, Alan Berger was the head of the television department, uh, who's still an agent at CAA. And he, I, my, my first expense account, I remember I turned in an expense account and it was, it was a, my expense report was $140. And he calls me in his office and he's like, you have an expense report. Like, why are you not taking people out? Why are you spending $140? And I said, you know, I just, I just not the kind of person who wants to sit at lunch with somebody. And he just stared at me and he's like, that's not going to work, you know? So I realized that was a little problematic and I started amping that up, but I would still feel uncomfortable. So I would go to lunch and as soon as it's down, I'd, I'd try to get the waiter over so we could order to chew up time immediately. And they'd say, I have to go to the bathroom. (laughs) <laughs> and I'm not joking. I'd go stand in the bathroom. And I, I did this once with, with uh, a woman who eventually became my, who I started dating. And she told me later that she remembered it. I just said I was really nervous. I didn't want to sit and talk. And I tried to chew up time by spending like 10 minutes in the bathroom. And she thought maybe I had a cocaine problem or something because like I was going to go to the bathroom to use coke. <laughs> well, clearly it worked. I mean, so for all you out there, when it comes to dating and you're on a first date, go uh, to the bathroom for am- 10 minutes. It's amazing that I ever succeeded seated as an agent or, or got a date. But, um, uh, yeah, that was the kind of thing I had to sort of fight my way through. And the first client that you ever got a job for, what was the job? What happened? So you knew, Hey, I can do this. I can do this. I think I sold a script, uh, that actually eventually got made a guy named Jonathan Tidor. And, uh, it, it eventually became a movie called I come in peace with Dolph Lundgren. And I sold that script to, I don't even remember what the name of the company was, some cheesy, some cheesy, you know, kind of company, like a Canon-esque kind of company. But, you know, early on, I, I was able to get some traction and I sold a few features really early in the game. I remember I, I signed, uh, I mean, this is like right when the beginning of when I was an agent, I signed uh, a writer who's a big writer, director named, named David Goyer. And I sold the, his first script and he was working as a, uh, he was working as like a guy who delivers soda at the CBS MTM lot. And I saw, I got, I took the script of his, um, called, I think it was called lethal contact or something. I had a lot, I seem to be very involved in <laughs> violent movies. And I remember I took it and I went down to Jack Gilardi, who was an old time agent who represented a lot of, you know, kind of very iconic. I think old-time he's still there. He's probably still there, uh, at, at 150. <laughs> and, uh, he, I went to him and I got him to give the script to, to Jean-Claude Van Damme. And then we did get it set up at actually at Canon. And that was the, I think that was the first thing that, that David Goyer sold. And, uh, you know, so I had, it was like that. And I had a couple writers that were on, I got some writers on the Smothers Brothers, the new Smothers Brothers show. And then, you know, uh, and, and that, that was one of the only shows that stayed working during the 1988 strike. And during that period of time, that was the writer's strike. The writer's strike. So the, the business sort of was like shutting down and I had some traction. And maybe either that was around the time that my former boss, Howie Klein, left. He went to become a manager. And that kind of really helped my career a lot because he left to be a manager, which is an, 
non-competitive situation with the agency and the agency wanted to keep his clients. And I was the only one who kind of knew them because I had been his assistant. So we tried to keep a lot of his clients and I kept, you know, some of them, not all of them, uh, but, you know, a, a couple of them, most notably, the most important ones were uh, a couple of guys named um, Al Jean and Mike Reese, who were at the time writers on ALF. And then became writers on It's Gary Shandling Show. And Alf was a show that Bernie Brillstein sold, I believe. Yeah, and It's Gary Shandling Show was also a Brillstein show. And so that really helped because prior to that, you know, I'm signing people who had never done anything before. Like, as I mentioned, David Goyer, or I signed uh, an, uh, probably the biggest writer in the world, a guy named David Kep, who's one of my closest friends. But he had never done anything, and I had sold his... A script of his uh, that also got made called Bad Influence back then. But, you know, there's only so far you can get if you're only signing people who, you know, who've not done anything. And when, after I had Mike and Al, who, who I got from, from Howie and uh, maybe a couple other of his clients, it made it a lot easier because, you know, I'd go try to sign someone and they'd say, well, you know, the first thing they're going to ask you, because I was young, who do you represent? And I'd say, well, you know, this guy who sold a cheesy action movie and another guy who who's uh, did a rewrite for another cheesy company. And, you know, they don't want to sign with you. But then when you have people go, oh, these guys who are on It's Gary Shandling Show and maybe the staff writers on another thing, I had like two or three or four clients. And then I was able to sort of build from there. So at that point, there was kind of a critical mass that allowed me to propel myself forward and sign other people and also getting over the whole, you know, shyness thing that I had and, and, and be a little bit more forceful and a little more confident. And then my career kind of went pretty well after that. Yeah. So how do you end up at Bauer Benedict? Um, well, when I was about 25, again, you know, I, I was very naive and I never had a mentor, um, which really is, I think kind of did me in, in a lot of ways. So you didn't feel like Howie was a mentor, Howie Klein? Well, Howie left, you know, and we didn't have that kind of a relationship really. I mean, I do owe a lot to him, but it was, it wasn't the thing where he's like, you know, Hey, do this, don't do that. And I didn't really have a father who was like that to some extent, the people who I felt like could have been my mentor, like Howie left and did something else. And, and then the other one was Bill Block, who was the, at the time, the head of the motion picture lit department. And he had sort of promised that he was going to bring me into the motion picture department because I was doing a lot of movie stuff and I wanted to get out of the TV department. The other agents there were kind of difficult and would try to steal my little clients who away from me internally in the inside the agency like literally people who worked down the hall would go up to my clients and say don't you think you should have a more you know experienced agent and take my clients most notably a guy named scott schwartz who i still see all the time and um and i so i wanted to move in and i really liked bill and i wanted to be like bill he had a porsche it was you know that was like my dream and then bill left to start uh, an agency called Intertown. So now I'm kind of adrift inside the agency and I had a contract that was running up. Um, I had, I had been making, I think $60,000 a year. This is 1989 and my contract's coming up and I'd never, I'd never met anybody at any other agencies, but I now had like this group of writers. I had signed some more people. I had people on the Simpsons Alan, uh, Gina Reese went over to the Simpsons and then I also had, uh, Kogan and Walidarski who were on the Simpsons and I had signed a bunch of more, bunch more people. And relationships because Wally Walidarski is who, uh, uh, wrote the movie Seeing Other People, which you produced. Wrote, directed. Yeah. And, uh, and then, you know, those guys were starting to take off and people had called me and I was running towards the end of my my contract, but I wanted to stay at ICM. I mean, it's, when you're at a talent agency, you don't want to do anything that might disrupt 
uh, the trajectory you're on. And the one thing that could disrupt it is like if you leave, then all your clients have to make a new decision. Are they going to come with you or they're not going to come with you? And I had had a meeting. Did you worry about that when you oh, left? Yeah. And so even so, you, even back then, you were feeling insecure that even if I go someplace, I'm not enough. Oh yeah, but I want. I was going to stay. My plan was to stay. I just was trying to see if I could move into the movie business, which the TV people knew about, uh, because Bill Block tried to do it before he left, and they wouldn't allow it. And then he left. And Jeremy Zimmer took over the the motion picture lit department and he hated me and was really mean and abusive to me and would yell at me. And so that was really kind of a drag. But I still felt like I wanted to stay because I didn't want to lose my clients and because it's all that I knew. Now, remember that sentence about Jeremy Zimmer and yelling and uh, because uh, that's going to come into play later on. Um, So we I I was negotiating and I really wanted to make one hundred thousand dollars a year. And what were uh, you making at the time? 60. And, uh, and you know, this is 1989. I was 25. And it was like, that's a lot of money back then. And, and they, we were negotiating and they offered me 80 and it was going back and forth. And during that period of time, I did meet, have a meeting at CAA and I, with the people in the TV department and they wanted to bring me over. But I would have, I had the first meeting with the people who ran the TV. The Do you TV. remember the agents in the meeting? At yeah, that time? it was a guy named Mark Rosen and uh, Abby Spiegel. And they ran the TV lit department. And they said, uh, and I said, well, I like to do both TV and features. And I have a few feature clients who seem to be taking off, notably like David Kep and David Goyer and a couple others. And and they said, oh, well, you'd have to let the t- the feature people handle that. There's, we're too busy in TV and you just, you'd be have too much to do in TV. At that point, I just said, I'm not doing I know internally, I didn't say that to them. I'm not doing it. And then they called me and said, hey, you know, we really liked you. We'd like you to meet with Lee Gabler if you're if you're really serious about doing this. And he ran all of the, the whole TV department. And I said, no, I don't want to do it. So I'd already said no to CAA. The power of no. Yeah. I Well, I just didn't. I didn't. I wanted to stay, but I wanted to get a better deal. And I think they had offered me 80 and... I'm still pushing for a hundred and I'm also pushing to get them to get Jeremy to not be so mean to me. And, and, um, you know, the negotiations kept going on and dragging and I was dragging it on and I wanted to have a couple of, at least one other meeting with another agency. And there was this small agency called Bauer Benedict, you know, like six people, but they had a lot of big time clients back then. So it was small. They mostly did features I knew one guy who had worked at ICM named Marty Hurwitz who became who went over to work in television. But they, you know, they had big marquee clients like Michael J. Fox at that particular time when he was, you know, doing Back to the Future and he was at his peak, and Brian De Palma and Larry Kasdan when they were at their peak. I mean, so they had big clients, so that seemed really cool, like to not be in a big sort of nest of vipers like I was when I was at ICM, and maybe I could contribute there. So I got uh, a meeting with them through some lawyers and I had one meeting with them and it went really well. But at the end, I still thought I'm not going to leave. Um, and the negotiations went on. I think they went up to 90,000. And, uh, at that time, this guy, Scott Schwartz went and told them that he thought I was, he heard that I was leaving to go to CAA. He told the, my boss that. And what happens in the business for those of you listening is no matter what you think you're doing, 
no matter where you are, where you think that no one is going to know anything or what it is, you always have to walk through a hallway somewhere and there's always somebody looking, taking note and starting a rumor or gossiping. No matter what you do, you could meet in a private vault Mm -hmm. and there'd be somebody at a front desk of a hotel that saw something that could say something to somebody else. Yeah, that's totally true. But he made it up because he didn't know if I had met with him or not. And I had already said no. So he was just trying to undermine me uh, or just have some kind of currency. What was the motivation for him to be undermining you? To take my clients, which he had already tried to do before. So I then they started pressuring me, like, why aren't we signing this contract? And I said, well, I want another $10,000. And they said, we're not getting it. And I still had six weeks left on my prior contract. And they started putting, you know, I'd get more and more pressure from them. And uh, I was supposed to have a second meeting with the, with uh, Marty Bauer and Peter Benedict, who owned Bauer Benedict. And, uh, and then all of a sudden this thing started to crescendo. And I, uh, I got a call from my biggest clients, uh, Al Gene and Mike Reese. And they said, why is, why is Jack Deitman calling us? And he was my boss. He was my direct superior in the TV lit department. And I said, I don't know why. He said, well, he called us to see if, ha- if we could have lunch with him. And so, I mean, it was pretty clear that what he was saying is I'm going to, if you're going to try to leave, I'm going to take your clients from you. So that flipped and me Jack out. never told you that he was calling. He did it behind your back. What, uh, did, what did he think? No, no, no. And I went to him and I said, what the hell is that? And he said, I'm not going to let you leave with your clients. And I went to his boss, Alan Berger, and I said, I thought I had a couple more weeks to work out this thing. I was supposed to have dinner with uh, Jeremy Zimmer to kind of work out our problems. And I did. And then, you know, we had this thing and Jeremy said whatever he was instructed to say because they wanted me to stay at the agency. And I went to Alan. I said, look, I need, this isn't fair, you know, whatever. And he said, well, we're going to give you another week or something like that or two weeks. And all over $10,000. Yeah. Well, I would have closed it, you know, right then, but I still wanted it. I, I, Oh, $200 a week. That's all of this was over. In the end, yes. And Why do you think that was? Um, well, it related for them or for me? For them. Well, there was other people in my, de- there was another guy in my department, Bob Goomer. I felt I had better clients than him. I should make more than him, but he was making 90 or 100 or whatever. It's like one of those kind of things. And they were setting precedent. And I think they felt like they, you know, I was 25. So I think they felt like they had power over me, which they did. I was going to stay. Um, I wanted to take that second meeting with Bauer Benedict though. So I go to Berger and he says, okay, you can, uh, you can stay. You will give you two more weeks. Then I went back and I said to Jack, I said, well, I have two more weeks. And Alan told, said that. And he then said, you know, we'll see or something like that. And then Jim Wyatt called me. And Jim Wyatt. Or I went down to Jim Wyatt, who was the president of the company. So this is what's odd. You know, it's like there's a guy who's 25 years old. He's like literally sperm in the business, yet he's getting there before everybody else, leaving after everybody else, working it, banging the phones, doing everything he can, and obviously creating a situation where I like to say you were undeniable. Nobody call when your contract is up with two weeks left, nobody's calling every day and having the president, Jim Wyatt of the company, walk down and talk to you. Well, he ordered me to go down and talk to him. But anyway, <laughs> I went down and talked to him and he said he said Burger, give me two weeks. He said, 
you got to sign your contract. And I said, well, I, you know, I want to be in the movie department. Nobody's like, so they goes, I'll make, I'll get you into the movie department. I said, well, Jack's fighting me. He goes, I don't care. I'll do it. Okay. He goes, I said, I still just, I want to think this over. I really wanted another $10,000. He says, you have one week. I'm coming. I'll be back from Cannes and I want your answer. But he didn't say, I'll give you the 10000 but he said, no, I'll no. make you a movie. I'll put you in the yeah, movie Yeah, he department. said he wouldn't give me the 10000 I go back to my office and I said, I called, I think I called Peter Benedek and I said, hey, I got to move up our meeting. It was maybe two weeks in advance for our second meeting, if you're interested. And he said, uh, I don't know if I can get Marty to do that. He's going to New York or something like that. And I get a call from Jeff Berg, who's the CEO of the company. The Jeff Berg, who just recently, in the last year and a half, formed a resolution. And if you're in the business or not in the business, after a year and a half, they're uh, closing their doors. And he basically said, uh, uh, "We, you know, we we're not going to screw around. We want to. I want an answer from you right now." And I said, "Well, Jim told me I had a week." He goes, "No, right now." And I said, "I wouldn't." I wouldn't agree to that. I wouldn't say yes. And you haven't gotten your second meeting with... No, but I didn't want to be pressured. I knew that it was unfair. Like, all these people... First, Berger told me I had two weeks. Then Wyatt said I had another week. And then he says, right now. And I said, no. And he goes, you know, fine. Your career's over. He said, your career's over. Yeah. And then he shut my... He hung up on me. And I locked my door. And I called my lawyer, who at the time was a guy named Eric Greenspan, who's a big music lawyer now. And he... uh, And I said, they're firing me, I think. (laughs) <laughs> and he said, well, well, can't you stop that? Can't you? And I said, no. They, they said I had to sign a contract and I wouldn't do it. So I locked my door and there, and then Jack Deitman, my boss, and then the head lawyer, a guy named Bob Chuck, are like knocking on my door. <laughs> and I had it locked. And uh, You'd think they'd have the key. And I said, uh, I call, and then I called Peter Benedict and I go, now they're firing me. Do you want to, you have to meet with me tonight. Now, I'm surprised you said to him, now they're firing me, because doesn't that put you in a position of weakness? I guess, but I, yeah, yeah. But I also, I don't know. Yeah, you're right. I I mean, at the time, it was like, I was just in a whirlpool. Like, it was so shocking, because I I didn't think any of this was going to happen. Was it like a Jerry Maguire moment where you're calling all your clients in their locked office Uh, and saying... No, I did that right after, because they did throw me out, so... I, Peter said he'd find out if we could meet and I opened my door. It's only 11 o'clock in the morning. You know, I mean, I'm not really like, none of this was planned. I thought I'd go through this process. I would maybe get an offer from Bauer Benedict, which would make me more confident, or I'd maybe use that to get the extra $10,000 I wanted from ICM. But I was staying, I was for sure staying at ICM. And, uh, and they, they came into my office and they said, uh, how did they get in your office? Well, I opened the door, you know, cause they were knocking and, uh, I let them in. <laughs> And outside was a guy, you know, from downstairs, like a utility guy, locked, padlocking my my files. And uh, I, he said, uh, I was really unnerved. And he said, you know, you were, you were, we're letting you go. And I go, but I have six weeks left on my contract. He goes, we'll pay you for your six weeks and you can't work anywhere else. And I was like really angry. And I said, I can't believe you're doing this. I'm only, I'm only 25, <laughs> you know? <laughs> and so I, and my assistant outside, Marsha was crying. Like she didn't know what was going on. She's just crying, you know? <laughs> and, uh, I picked up my Rolodex and I got into the elevator. They let you take your Rolodex? No. Jack came out and he said, <laughs> I, he, you know, said to the other the lawyer, you can't take my, you can't take that. And I said, and the truth is, by the way, I later found out that it was, the law was that I could take my Rolodex. This is a paper Rolodex. And, uh, and I said, uh, well, you can try to take it from me, but I'm taking it or something like that. It was really tough at the time. And, um, and uh, I got in the elevator and I got down to my car 
and I drove out like out toward out of the entrance. And every time I walk by, by the way, that old ICM building where Medeo is, I always get to the, I always walk, go by that driveway. And I just remember that moment when I was in there and I go, where am I going? Like, am I going home? I don't know where to go at 11 o'clock in the morning. I, I didn't, there was no weekday 11 o'clock in the morning plan for me other than to actually work ever. Um, and then, uh, you know, eventually, and then Alan Berger called and said, come back, sign a contract and we'll just let it all go. And I, you know, I said, no. really? Yeah. And then I got calls from other agencies and I went and had a couple more meetings and I ended up going to, to Bauer Benedict because, and those guys, you know, I don't even think they knew what was going on or cared. And I tried to get the hundred thousand from them. They said, no, 90. <laughs> <laughs> so I didn't get any more money. And, uh, but I went to go there and I think they didn't even know who I was. They didn't know who my clients were. They didn't seem to care. They were just really flush with money and they seemed like, all right, why not? Let's take a shot. So what's interesting is that, and I think I, I want you to talk to the audience about this because I, you obviously went with your gut, but normally when people are passionate about you. I mean, there's like six people going down to meet you or calling you to their office. The president of the fucking company says, come to my office and gives you what you wanted, the motion picture thing. Doesn't give you the extra well, 10. he said he would do it. You know, who knows? I, I mean, mean, you have to... Everybody lied to me all the time. So yeah, but know. this is, you know, the president of the company. I, I, I would hope, not to say that he hadn't lied before, but I would hope... Obviously, he believed in you. All these people believed in you. Even the people that are trying to steal your clients or the guy who was angry and yelling at you, Jeremy Zimmer, they do that for a reason. They do it because they know you're a threat. They know you're somebody who's got something going on. Mm -hmm. So here you had a company that was passionate about you, that was your home, that believed in you. And instead, you go to a place that doesn't even know your fucking name. Yeah. Well, you know, again, I didn't have anybody to work any of this shit out with, you know, and again, I'm 25 years old and kind of maybe even even an immature 25 year old. Like, I didn't know what to do. And if I had had somebody, I mean, my father, I told my father and he's like, well, maybe if you go back and and ask, they'll give you your job back. I'm like, yeah, but they threw me out and they've mistreated me. And he's like, well, you can maybe get your job back. And I was like, that's not what I wanted to hear. I think like I didn't have anybody offering me some advice. And that really... That, that was something that I wish I had. Um, I wish I had a Barry Katz who would say, hey, do this or do that, or why don't you give this a try? Or maybe you're not seeing it from this point of view. It doesn't, but you know, it worked out better for me to leave ICM for sure. <laughs> At the same time, I don't know that I handled everything the way I wish I could have handled because I was just too young and immature and there was nobody. I mean, all the people that were older than I was who could have been my mentors were generally competitive with me and I or, love, or dysfunctional. Know, and I love... I love being a mentor when I can. I love the fact that people would call me and people do call me from all over. I, I, I love that thing. But you were the kind of person I don't think that asked. You were, the, you were a paradox because here you were in the office fighting, pushing, going, doing whatever. But when it came to yourself, you would never ask for yourself. You know, I didn't have a happy childhood and my parents weren't that involved with me. So, you know, I just didn't, nothing, and I didn't have an older sibling or anything like that. So I never had it set up that like you could actually have another person say, let me give you the value of my experience, son. 
But you had a moped without a helmet. That was stupid. I almost, I laid that thing down numerous times and (laughs) and almost died so many times. I can't even believe that my father was that irresponsible. I could be across from Gary Busey right now. Uh, You know what? Very soon you might be because I've taken some blows to my head, you know, in the past that I'm sure will yield uh, a Gary Busey-like state in the near future for myself. So talk about Bauer Benedict and how that went and how you moved up the ladder there. Well, that was really great. Um, you know, because it was what I dreamed about. Uh, I went there. They really had very little television business. I mean, they had actors. They had Paul Reiser, who was just just developing Mad About You, and they had a couple other people who were doing shows. But it wasn't really a situation where there was that much business going on. And I showed up, and I had these clients, and I and they were it was fortunately like all their deals were coming up. So I made a big deal for Gene and Reese to to be the number two and then eventually number one showrunners on, on The Simpsons. And what happens as an agent when he says your deal is coming up, what happens is even if you don't have that deal, like his clients were at ICM. So ICM commissioned their deal up to a certain point. But if the deal and the contract ends, the new agency gets to renegotiate the deal and oftentimes makes the commission on the additional situation. And occasionally, if they fight it the right way, they could get the whole commission on the next deal. Yeah. And so these guys didn't even think I had anything. And they just figured, why not? Let's give it a shot. And I came in and I I made like $3 million worth of deals immediately. And, and I had a bunch of other clients, too. It's like all of a sudden they realized I had, oh, some feature clients that meant something like Dave Kep. I think Dave Kep right around that time wrote the screenplay for Jurassic Park and he became hot. And, you know, it was like a lot of my clients started to break. I mean, literally within the first month. And they were like, whoa, what is this about? And then the other thing was they had like they had this uh, hot receptionist who immediately, as soon as I got there, started flirting with me. And they all, you know, these guys are all been married for a long time and were frustrated in the way that you married people are. And so... You know, of course, I started sleeping with her, and they found out about that, and it was like, "Wow, you're the you're just such a rock star." Is that you advisable know? to bang away in the office? No, it's terrible. I think it's terrible, and it's wrong. But that's the thing. I like I said, I had no real mentors. I had guys who would be like, "You're doing the wrong thing. How great is that?" <laughs> <laughs> I love you. What was that like? I'm, I'm not gonna talk about. It. Really, you're. I can't believe you're 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 doing her. We we you know they, they're thinking about their they were inappropriate with her. Before really they with. thought you were a great agent. Now they thought you were their. It's like I was bringing the money and I was sleeping with the girl that they wish somebody was that they were sleeping with. It was like it was crazy. And so they were really great. And I spent a lot of time with them. And on the weekends, I'd go to the track with Marty Bauer and then we'd all watch football on Sunday. And then uh, about three or four months later, my nemesis from ICM, Jeremy Zimmer, got fired and he came over to work there. And I was like, holy shit. I mean, it was <laughs> a, literally the best time in my life. They, I, I was working so for they these didn't guys. Consult you. They appreciated me. They supported me. They really tried to, they helped me sign my clients. I had a car allowance. I bought a Porsche. Like my, my it was my, my dream. And then all of a sudden the guy who used to really like the schoolyard bully would beat me up in the schoolyard came to work there. And I, and you know what? And then, and I thought about leaving immediately because I just hated him so much. Then, but, you know, the good thing was I kind of, Marty said, we'll, we'll make this work out. And uh, I start, you know, I think I, I also realized that part of my dislike for Jeremy was I also wanted his approval and he wouldn't give it to me. And then, you know, so we started working together and he is a very smart guy and a really good agent. And, uh, and we ended up mostly getting along, I think. And then, you know, other times not getting along. <laughs> but you know, it didn't it didn't turn out that badly and 
And from there, my career really started to take off and I got had a lot of breaks. And because the way it kind of works is, you know, especially when you represent television writers, which was the, the bulk of my business and the, the most lucrative part of my business, I would, I would, uh, you know, sign everybody on the shows. Like if you have a top writer on the show, you go sign all the people down the list because it's very easy. You know, they want, they all want to be big writers and they go, Oh, my boss, his agent wants me. I got to be with them. They'd leave their clients. So, you know, I ended up because I, around that time, I also signed Larry David and then Seinfeld had already been on the air, but I took him. Now tell me what, where Larry David was at the time that you were signing him and what was he doing? Uh, he was at William Morris. And I had read a feature script of his that I really liked. I didn't know anything about what he was doing in TV. In fact, I had heard, and then I, I think I had heard from somebody else. I already represented a friend, two, two of his friends, a guy named Larry Charles, who went on to become, you know, a big television writer and the director of Borat and Bruno and a lot of other movies. And, uh, and then, and I represented another great writer, Elaine Pope, and they were both friends with Larry and I had read his feature script. And so I called Larry and said, Hey, I represent your friends and I love this feature. You know what's going on? He said, "Well, I'm doing this this TV show." He had done a, the pilot of Seinfeld with Jerry Seinfeld, and then they were doing four more episodes. And I was like, oh, "Whatever, that'll go down the tubes." And like Jerry Seinfeld, what the fuck? He's been around forever. <laughs> but I really, I could take this guy's script, his feature script that I read, and I could go get him, you know, rewrite work, and I could get this guy making easily making six hundred grand a year, you know, doing rewrites and polishes because he's hilarious. He's, so I called him and he, in fact, by that time I was confident and he's like, uh, you know, I'm happy with my agents. And for our audience, a polish, if you don't know, is when you take a script that, that maybe a studio has, they've already got it ready to go, but they just normally the writer they have, they've asked to do a polish, but for some reason he doesn't give them what they want. Sometimes they'll hire extra comedy people to come in, go through the script and add funny to it. So I said, well, you know, I'd like to meet with you. I think I, I could do a good job. And he said, well, I, I really like Adam Berkowitz, who was his agent at William Morris. And uh, so I'm not really looking for an agent. And I go, well, come on, let's have dinner with me and we'll talk about it. And he's like, you know, in Larry's mind, because he's like, free dinner? Okay. <laughs> and uh, I went to dinner with him and I asked Jeremy to come with me. Jeremy came with me because he knew who Larry was. So you was. asked your guy who you were arguing with a yeah, lot. Yeah, but we had, we had patched it up. And, you know, Jeremy's really good, you know, so I wanted to get this guy. And uh, Jeremy already had read another script of his a long time ago because Jeremy had been a William Morris at one point. So he knew who Larry was. And uh, and again, neither of us gave a shit about Seinfeld. Like, what the fuck could that be? It's nothing. But we knew that we, he was a good feature writer. And that was my whole point. So we have lunch with a, a dinner with him. And he's like, I, you know, I, I'm going to stay. I'm not leaving my agency. And I said, all right, well, how's it? Why is it going so well? Why are you so happy with it? And then he would pr proceeded to tell me about how. A year and a half earlier, this is before Seinfeld was produced, they had cut him. They called him to cut him from the agency. And he had to call his old agent who had left the agency and said, they're cutting me from, from the agency. They're dropping me as a client. And the old agent uh, called them and got them to keep him. And I said, doesn't sound like really a lot of commitment for you. Like, <laughs> and he kind of put it in his mind. And I said, well, what have they really done? I mean, did they get you Seinfeld? Goes, no, Jerry called me and you know, we started working on this thing together. I go, so they didn't really do that. Do you have a good deal on the show? No, I, a really bad deal. I'm really unhappy with it. I, like, <laughs> I don't see why you're saying you want to stay. And, uh, and that just started my process. And I just, I mean, the, the show was, was in production, but it hadn't aired. And I just worked on him uh, for a year and a half. And the show got on the air and then people liked it. And then it got another order. 
and it, and I just kept up the pressure uh, and eventually was able to sign him. So I had, you know, so then I had him and then Larry Charles and Elaine Pope were on the show. So what ends up happening is I'm able to sign most of the writers on The Simpsons and most of the writers on Seinfeld. So now I have most of the writers on the two best shows on TV as that progressed. And then it became super easy to just sign anybody else that I wanted. And then I also but had... how do you service the people when you have so many? Well, I also had a lot of feature writers. All my feature writers were starting to pop. So uh, basically... Unlike a lot of other agents, I never was really proprietary in terms of myself and like not bringing people in to work with my clients. And so other than maybe the very top people that I had represented around that time and towards the end of my agenting career, you know, I always brought other people in, you know, really only I dealt with, dealt with David Kep or or Larry David or Conan O'Brien, who I signed at that time, or recent Gene. But, you know, further down the list, like Judd Apatow, who I represented or others, uh, or a lot of other great writers, uh, or Linwood Boomer went on to, you know, create Malcolm in the Middle and other people that I represented. I would bring other agents in, and they would sort of help, and I would come in when necessary. So, towards the end of being an agent at UTA, I, uh, you know, I had maybe seventy clients, but I had other people other than the, maybe the top ten helping me with everybody. And you mentioned Conan. Uh, how did you end up working with Conan? Conan was a super hot writer. I had already knew him because he, would, he had been Howie Klein's client. And he went with Howie Klein uh, at, and Howie was his manager. And he was a the hot writer on The Simpsons. And back then, everybody got an overall deal if you were on The Simpsons or Seinfeld or any of those shows. You'd get a lot of money. They'd put up a lot of money under an overall deal. So someone would be paying you to develop new shows. But back then, like the mid-range deals were... 800,000 a year and the big deals were up to, you know, $5 million a year. And so if you were on a hot show and people wanted you, that would be there. And that, that deal was really out there for, for Conan. And I just want to explain to our audience when a, a studio makes a deal like that for a writer, an overall deal, like an $800,000 deal or up to a $5 million deal, the way it works is, is that they negotiate what their fee will be for a pilot and what their fee will be per episode as an executive producer on a particular show if they get it and normally what the studios try to do is they try to burn off a hundred percent of the deal is applied they try but great representatives don't allow that to happen let me explain so if somebody's getting let's say a million dollars on a let's say a four-year deal or a two-year deal or whatever it a million is, dollars a year yeah uh, whatever it is they their goal is to get them on the air and when they get them on the air those people don't norm if it's 100 percent applied they don't get paid any money until their fees have equaled a million dollars and then they get it but great agents like gavin would try to get maybe 50 percent of it applied and 50 percent uh so they they make more money oh yeah i would get them a lot i would get all my clients a lot of money and none of them would recoup and the, the studios would get screwed but Back then, there was just so much money flying around in the television business in a different kind of way. Um, but Conan was the hot writer, and then he did, he left Howie, and he didn't have anybody, and he was meeting with agents. And every he met with everybody, and he had like eight meetings. Like anybody who was like an agent that anybody knew, he would meet with them. And so, of course, I had knew him because I had been Howie's assistant, and I got into the same horse race to try to get him. I had a couple different meetings, but, you know, you talked to him and I would say, well, what do you want to do, you know, going forward? And he said, I want to perform. And I said, 
then we'll make you a performer. Again, we'll make going work. back to your career, a guy was uh, he was the president of the Harvard Lampoon as a junior and as a senior, which was unprecedented. Yeah. And then he got a job on Saturday Night Live out of college. Uh, he got a job at not necessarily the news and then Saturday Night Live. Sorry. Yeah. And he was he was partnered with another writer, Greg Daniels, Greg who's Daniels. a huge writer. And who they, created The Office and Parks and Rec, co-created The Office, Parks and Rec, and King of the Hill, I believe. Yeah, exactly. And he, and so he was, so Conan was super hot, but everybody, you know, the other agents were all kind of thinking, yeah, yeah, I'm sure you want to perform. I've heard that before, but we'll, you know, you'll, we'll, we'll put you in an overall deal for a couple million bucks a year. And I didn't, you know, to me, when he said he wanted to perform, I actually looked at it from a, from a selfish point of view as... Well, maybe he could be a performer. Like, I already had better writers than every other agent. That was undoubtable. But, but like, I didn't have any... Perf- I had one or two performers, you know. I, had, I was just starting to move into other areas. I was just getting clients who were starting to direct and were looking like they could become directors. And I wanted to have actors, and I wanted to have that. And, he, and Conan was the funniest guy ever. And so I went and saw a stage show that he had done with another writer named Robert Smigel that they had done in Chicago. So, and uh, I went, we all know from TV Funhouse and Saturday Night Live <laughs> and uh, Triumph the Insult Dog. Yeah, and the those Chicago guys that he does with George Went. And we, um, you know, I'd seen him and I thought he was great. Like, I believed it. I thought he could, he could do this. And I think he, as opposed to the other agents, he knew I was sincere about this, that I wasn't going to try to jam him into an overall deal, that I was thinking that he would be, um, you know, he would be a performer. And I, you know, I, I basically won the Derby. And what's he, interesting is you won the Derby and you say, one of the things you said about your writer clients, hey, you know, I represent the executive producer of The Simpsons or the, the head guy on Seinfeld. It was easy to get those writers because I had people in that lane. But here Conan's in a sweepstake. He's, he's meeting eight to 10 agencies Everybody, the greatest agents in the world are, are meeting with him who have clients who are on camera and writing. You don't have anybody like that, really. Yet he believes enough in you to say, hey, I'll, I'd like to be your first in that area. Yeah. Oh, he's, he's an ex- you can't fool him. He's as smart a guy as you're going to come up with. So I think he could judge the sincerity of the situation. And I truly believed it. And I was right, you know. Awesome. So tell me about how um, your company, Bauer Benedict, became United Talent Agency. Well, by that point, I was a partner at the agency. And, uh, you know, this is, this is you know, pro- I don't know, 91, 90. They, the other guys, I wasn't a partner yet, but the other guys, uh, the guys who were owners of the agency would say, you know, we want to, you know, they would get offers to merge or there'd be discussions. So there was a conversation about merging with Broder, Curlin, Webb, which was a big writing company with a lot of writers, and then Leading Artists, the, which was run by a guy named Jim Burkus, was really pushing hard to see if they could merge. And they kind of had a similar business with writers, and yet they had some actors that were good and some directors that were big. So, uh, But they had a big TV business. And I felt like those were the guys I hated most because the ones who were always coming after my clients was were, were this guy, Marty Edelstein, was just always trying to get my clients. Who so uh, really... produced Prison Break and now the new uh, show on ABC, Christella. And we would, uh, you know, so there was a lot of competition between me and them. 
and I had lost one. I hadn't lost many clients in the course of my career, but I had lost one to them. Now, don't um, you don't you look toward yourself as karma because you met with uh, Larry David? He was represented. You took him away from Adam Berkowitz and uh, his most company. Of the, most of the clients I, 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 you know, Judd Apatow was at CAA. Most of the clients I got were with somebody. So else. you're you're doing the same thing to people. So is it bad that you <laughs> when you think somebody's doing it to you? Do you how do you feel about it? I want to kill him. But they wanted to kill you. Right, but I have to kill them before they kill me, Gary. <laughs> you know, that's the way it works. You know, if you're a lion in the, you know, out there in the jungle, and the other lion wants to be the top lion, they want to kill you, and you got to kill them. And whoever wins, wins, you know? So I really didn't like those guys, and I was angry about losing this one writer I represented, a guy named Kevin Curran. And he and he, I lost him to Gary Cosey, who was the other agent there. And uh, they, I heard they were, and they said they were meeting with leading artists about merging. And I said, I, I, you can't merge with them. I hate them. And he's like, we're just being polite. This is what Marty Bauer told me. And then they eventually merged with them. And again, I thought about leaving. And I almost went to Intertalent where Bill Block was. And then Marty talked me into staying. And so, you know, the merger took place. And you know, I continue to do really well because of that and uh, because of the merger. I mean, I, did, I think it did help me, uh, irrespective of the other acrimony that just took place when you try to merge two very different corporate cultures, which is which was true. Awesome. And so at UTA, you, you became a partner immediately when they moved? No, it was a little later because what happened was a couple of the age of uh, one partner, a guy named Rob Rothman, left. He was unhappy with the merger and he went and started his own company. And then Marty Edelstein was probably about to become a partner. And then he decided to leave and go to CAA before then. So they had a big hole. Somebody had to run the television area. Uh, Gary Cosse. But only like 28 or 29. Yeah, but I had a big business. And Gary Cosse, who had a huge television business, wasn't really the kind of person who wanted to do that. And so it was like, it had to be me. And so they, they basi basically, I became, I became the next partner. And so you became a partner. Things are going great at UTA, amazingly well. Also, you know, they're signing great comedy people like Jim Carrey and people like that. Yeah. So you have, it's, it's becoming like the place to be everything's going your way. Everything's great. I can't imagine what your bonus structure was at that point in time, starting a new company. And then you're at the height of everything and you decide, you know what? I don't, I don't want this agency thing isn't for me anymore. I want to, that's not at man. all what happened. I didn't decide anything. They fired me. The no, but before <laughs> they fired you, you No, I, what happened was before they fired me, I had been discontent all the time. I was really, nasty and abusive to them. I was like, you know, like what a, I was like a 15 year old girl and in, in, in a household yelling at her mother, you know, about how she doesn't get me and she doesn't appreciate me and I'm going to show you and maybe I'll run away. Why I mean, did that you was feel like every hour. Why did you feel unappreciated? Because I had my head up my ass. I, I, I was just constantly angry, which also made me successful. I was working all the time. I felt like everybody else didn't work as hard as I do. And it was just, it was just constantly me comparing myself to other people, thinking that I was better than them and being, and, and, and truthfully being rewarded for bad behavior, being rewarded for pushing everybody so hard. Because every time I would go to them and say, you guys don't appreciate me and I work harder than you, you know, you'd have nothing without me because I was bringing in a lot of money and I was working very hard. And I also had, you know, it was good that they had me from just a performance point of view, but I was just torturous. So they would give me more money every time. Every time I would go and like beat them up and say, I'm unhappy and I might leave and that kind of thing, they would just improve my deal. 
But the deal that you had, let's face it, you know, the only way to improve it is on the back end of the deal because even if they give you more money up front, you know you're going to make that money anyway and you go into percentages. So, I mean, did it make any difference or was it always improving on the end? No, it didn't really. The money wasn't the issue. It was my head that was the issue. It's like I couldn't get, I couldn't be calm. So you're at the top of your game. You have all these clients and they fire you. And tell me about that day. Uh, Well, I wasn't expecting it. You know, the day... They basically, I, I mean, I was just scoring. I was signing everybody. I just, I mean, literally the day before I had gone and had a meeting with Brian Grazer and I was going to sign Imagine Television and they agreed. And then it's like every day I would sign somebody else or somebody else would perform really well. And, uh, and things were going really well. And, um, you know, ultimately there had been other, and it's too long a story to go through, but they, there had been other kind of infighting between Jim Burkus and Marty Bauer about who's running the company. And I was really planning on leaving and they knew that I was going to like wait to the end of my contract and I was going to bring all the people that were loyal to me, which were a lot of the people in, in the TV department, but also the feature department because I would sign people and hand them off to those people. So they didn't want me to leave and they, and I was going to go start my own company. That would have been my plan. And they knew that. And I basically told them that, which was so stupid and immature. Cause if you want to do it, you don't go say, Hey, here's what's going to happen and allow them to strategize what to do. And they, like you did with Bauer Benedict when you told them you were fired. You gave them that that information. We mean at ICM? Yeah, when you you got fired. Yeah, yeah. No, I gave them all the information. It was just stupid. But again, I'm immature. I was 31 by this time. And they, they, you know. What age do you feel that you weren't immature? You you use age a lot. I'm just curious. What was the age where you actually said to yourself, you know what? I'm a man now. I'm not playing that card anymore. It was about eight weeks ago. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> all right keep going i'm sorry so you so uh, you know i i just mishandled everything i can i honestly looking back on it they started the company i didn't the money thing wasn't the issue i was treated really well i just couldn't it was really all about my own insecurity that people were going to screw me in some way and i had to constantly attack 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 in order to stop them from screwing me and that was just not true and they you know stupidly kind of tried to figure out a way that they could fire me they uh well the the some of the board members of the of the company could fire me marty bauer had already been kind of like marginalized within the company because of different fights that they had and so you know the the people who were ultimately running it other than me kind of grouped together and try to come up with a way of getting rid of me and being able to sort of keep my clients and and not pay me and it's very intricate and more more than I want to discuss right now. But ultimately, they kind of accused me of things I never did and said they could fire me for cause. And they should have gone to lawyers and figured out a better way to do it, because ultimately they, they could have done it in a smarter way, which allowed me for an opening to, you know, fight back with them. And so they I, I literally had no clue that I was being fired. And they called me on a Sunday morning and I was reading a screenplay and I thought, oh, I'll, I'll sell this screenplay. And I get a phone call and uh, one of them said, you know, uh, I hope you're sitting down. We're going to fire. We're, we're letting you go for cause. And I'm like, I, I don't even know what you're talking about. And uh, I called the lawyer and, you know, I didn't know what to do. And I uh, I sued them. And and you never got back into the building after that phone call? Yeah, I did. Uh, well, that day after they fired me, I went to the building because I had left my ch- – I, I, I immediately that Sunday got a meeting with a litigator through a friend. And I went to the building because I had to get my checkbook, 
Like I thought, oh, and I've never hired a lawyer before, so I'm, I'm, I'm going to have to pay a retainer. I better get a checkbook. So I went to the building, and they had, they had actually hired a guard who was standing outside the building waiting for me who would not allow me into the building. Eventually, after about three days, my lawsuit was settled. And you settled a lawsuit in three days. Well, yeah, because they had, they had screwed it up on their end, fortunately, because they could have done it in a better way and probably I would have been in trouble. And they, and uh, in the end, I, you know, they did, I did come back to get my things, uh, which was a very intense, you know, kind of situation to go back in and everybody looking at you because the, the offices back then, they're no longer in that same building, but the offices back then were like a big sort of, uh, bullpenny kind of thing and all the offices were glass so everybody could see me walk in and collect my boxes of stuff and leave. Um, but, you know. Did anybody come up to you in the hallway? Because that's always a scary thing when somebody's coming and you don't want to align yourself with the guy who who just got fired. Did anyone have the balls to come up to you and say, hug you and say, listen, we're going to miss you? No. <laughs> but I had seen those people like that weekend, like that Sunday was in the morning and then later I played basketball with everybody from the that I played basketball with, you know, uh, at the, at the uh, company and, you know, they were close friends and I eventually talked to them and it strained a lot of the relationships because people had to make decisions. I mean, I was very close to a couple of the agents who had benefited from me over the years and I expected them to be loyal to me. And I had stupid expectations of that as well. Like after I went to become a manager and with Judy wanted, Hoffland, with Judy Hoffland. Mm -hmm. And then I expected all the people who were loyal to me to then flood out of the agency and go to other agencies. And I tried to, you know, help them do that. And then they thought, you know, the, the guys at UTA, the people who were left to run UTA were smart and they, they went and offered more money to all of them and, and locked most of those people down. And that I took it personally that they wouldn't leave because of how I had been treated. But later I realized that I had been really overly self-centered in that whole thing. And, you know, they did what was best for them. And eventually I pretty much became friends with all of those same people. And you transfer to be a manager and, you know, normally clients don't want to pay an extra 10% if they don't have a manager at the time. How did you convince these behemoths in the business to give you extra money, which they them, weren't paying it before? A lot of them didn't have agents. A lot of them just came with me and didn't have agents. Um, so you were a majent. Somewhat. And I had a few that did go, and some of them were willing to pay that. The reality was I didn't take, you know, I had so many clients. I had more people who wanted to come with me than I was willing to take. And so in the end, I think like, you know, a few of them were willing to have agents and managers. Some some people I couldn't take with me because they already had, you know, I had a bunch of clients with Jimmy Miller. So he wasn't going to, you know, he they, they were going to stay with their managers. And then a few that just didn't want to have an agent and, and were big enough so that they, I, they, you know, just let me represent. Now, certain people like Jimmy Miller, uh, who uh, runs Mosaic and also represents Will Ferrell and Adam McKay and Judd Apatow, certain people like that, you there were certain people in the business that you didn't go after, that you didn't try to take their clients. Why was Jimmy Miller one of those people? Well, I'd never go after any manager's clients. That's not right. But you'd go after an agent's It's a different business. It was like the protocol of being a manager, you don't try to steal clients from any other manager. So really? I never did. You know that happens all the time. Maybe now. I mean, again, well, this is 18 years later. So, And I don't even know. It just wasn't something I was going to do. I mean, I was friends with these people. Like I, I was the management managers who represented my clients were all friends of mine. And I would never want to be involved in that. For the audience that doesn't understand why you wouldn't take a client from a manager as a manager, but you take them as an agent as an agent, they're all asking the question out there in the world, what's the difference? 
Well, the difference is that's that's a different business. You know, in that business, you go and you steal each other's clients. They were calling my clients and I was calling their clients. I also intentionally did not become friends with any of the agents that were out there who were my competitors because I didn't want to. Like sometimes it would come up like people would say, well, why don't you meet this guy who's at CAA? And I don't want to meet anybody at CAA. I want to take their clients. If you meet them and become friends with them, you're not going to do that. And the people at, at ICM, mo for the most part, like if they were friends, stayed friends of mine, they didn't go after my clients after I left ICM. I never went after anybody of theirs. But for the most part, they did. You know, so then it was open season. And with Judy uh, and your partnership there, great partnership. But I thought what was kind of odd was it seemed like she was more interested in just the representation business and being in that world. I think you were more interested in the representation business and how it led to executive producing and being creatively involved in things. Is that a correct? Uh, yeah. Assessment? And after six years, I pretty much stopped managing and I let go of all of my management clients except for Conan because I did very quickly realize, you know, it would be hard for me to be a manager and a producer at the same time. Um, and so that would mean not not managing anymore or not producing anymore. And I thought about that too. I mean, as I was going through kind of being circumspect about what I was doing, being a manager is a great job and really kind of an easy job. But I felt like I wasn't extending myself creatively or mentally. I was doing stuff that I had done for years. And maybe I, you know, part of it, I was literally thinking, well, maybe I'll just do the management business, which is not that time consuming. I didn't have that many clients. And a lot of my clients were writers who were under deals. So therefore, like the amount of work I had to do was very minimal. And it's not like, you know, for you representing comedians, you know, they've got shows, they've got a new thing happening all the time. If you represent a, if you represent writers and you make a three-year deal for them, you know, I call them, hey, you want to go to lunch? Oh, I'm kind of busy. I got to be in the writer's room. Okay. I mean, there's not that much to do. So that was a possibility. And then I would have to find another thing to do. But I couldn't, I didn't feel comfortable doing both because I was starting to initiate my own production uh, projects. And because I had been a manager, even if I didn't have any clients involved, which a lot of the stuff that I was doing didn't have clients involved, people would say to me, they'd think that I did. And they would treat me differently. And I'm sure you probably picked that up too. Like they don't treat you the same way if you manage someone who's on the production. And sometimes they would treat me that same way. Like I'm a, I'm a manager, not the real producer of the project, even if I didn't represent anybody. Yeah, there's a stain involved in that because a lot of managers, they just glam on and they just... Uh, oh, yeah. Most. And they just take the credit and the money and they never show up and they n never do any of the heavy lifting. Mm -hmm. So in the end, I decided I'm going to separate these two things. The production stuff was going really well. I had a lot of projects and I just thought I would focus on that. But I couldn't let go of Conan because that's, you know, that's the uh, dream job of all time. Absolutely. And so I still manage him. Which is amazing. And Hofflin Pallone goes the course, and then you decide you want to start your own company, Pariah. How does that happen? Well, I kept both going simultaneously for a while. And then, you know, it just came time for Judy and I. Like, I was, and then when I was down to just one client, there was no point of, my, of us maintaining the same offices and all of that. And she was a great partner to have. Like, really, in, in terms of, you know, my career from that trajectory, the only one where it just worked 100%. She's a wonderful woman. So uh -huh. she's amazing. And she just for you and the audience to know, she represented people like Sally Field, Kenneth Branagh, Julia Louis-Dreyfus, uh, Kevin Klein. She's an amazing, amazing person in the business. And she actually recently retired, I believe. And she's so happy. <laughs> she's really like one of the happier people I know. So, uh, you know, so then I just sort of moved on and started producing. 
and we've already talked about so much of the stuff you've done and, and working on. So now we're going to like go into a little uh, different direction here. I want to just uh, do a little word association with you. And if you could, if there's a little story or something thought you have in your mind about somebody before we ride off in the sunset. <laughs> Just, you know, sure. maybe there's a story, maybe there's something that might mean something to our audience in an inspirational way. Larry David. You know, it's an interesting thing. Like, I really have to look at Larry David as from just such a, I, was so, I had such good fortune, you know. And part of the reason why I've had good fortune I'm, is I made my own fortune to some extent by just being active, and there's a lot of people I would represent and I think this person's going to be great and they don't turn out to be that or they're difficult people or, you know, their career doesn't work for one reason or another. People, you know, you know, sometimes people are super talented and they can't keep it together so that they actually can succeed. And sometimes the luck is really with you and you, you know, and in my pushing to get involved with Larry has been so fortunate to me. I've had you know, projects, stuff that I've been able to be a producer on. Curb Your Enthusiasm, one of but, the greatest shows but ever. But I've been able to be involved with like different things that I thought were great and maybe I didn't get the right break and I could go back and say, hey, this thing would have succeeded had I got the right support from the network or, or the movie studio. But where I really got fortunate was like being involved with Larry because I have to say, I think I worked really hard for him. I think I negotiated good deals for him when he was on Seinfeld. But this was just like where I really, I, it was really, it really benefited me. I mean, to be involved with Curb Your Enthusiasm, even though there's not much I could do for Larry. I mean, Larry, Larry has it all, you know, Larry has the vision. Larry knows what he's doing, you know, and I feel like such a debt of gratitude. It's not one of these things where I felt like, oh, it's totally symbiotic. He and I, I did this for him and he did this for me. It's really a situation where I'm in a huge deficit to have been involved with a man like him. One of the true creative geniuses that I've ever met. And I don't necessarily throw that word around uh, like, it, it, like it was a dollar bill. I mean, this guy is, is a genius and a true unique voice. So, you know, I don't, I don't know how much more I could say. No, it's great. And very generous. He was very generous to keep me involved, you know. Um, Judd Apatow. Judge, you know, uh, it, it's a different kind of a thing. You know, I signed him early on before he was as hot as he was. And then I probably, you know, I didn't get to keep representing him as he became such a superstar. But again, it's the same kind of thing. A lot of people have talent. A lot of people also can have less talent, but know how to play the game and put things together. That's another guy where he could do it all. He really could do it all. I mean, he's a really great writer. But he was also he's also a great manager of people, and he's also a really good director. And there's a reason for it, you know. There's a reason why people like him have have that kind of level of success, and you really do see it. it's not luck. Absolutely. Although you didn't represent him, it was one of the first things you started with uh, Gary Shandling. You know, I didn't really have a relationship with Gary Shandling all that much. He seemed like a pretty funny guy, and 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 a really quirky uh, guy. It's uh, I I kind of. I always really enjoyed his voice and I really liked his, um, the, what he, you know, his product. And that goes back to his standup. His standup was always, you know, genius. But that's the one thing that really is important when you're talking about comedy is like the authentic voice. And Larry had that and Conan has that. Gary Shanley had that. And all the people, the people that are truly great, uh, Tim Allen or whoever who've had the outside success, they authentically are that thing that you latch on to, I do believe. David Fincher. He's an asshole. 
Uh, okay. <laughs> uh, Larry Charles. He's a, he's a wonderful person <laughs> and uh, a true friend and a, and a gigantic talent. And you know what? In some ways, I would say Larry Charles is kind of a mentor to me. I mean, he's kind of the older. In, in some ways, I see Larry Charles as the older brother that I never really had. I really do adore him. The experience of panic room and producing a movie that made hundreds of millions of dollars. You know, that's a, it's a very frustrating experience because once the, when you're when you're producing a movie, your power is greatest when you're hiring the director. And then after you hire the director, it all sort of fades away, unless it's maybe a first-time director. And so the studio really looks to you to be the person guaranteeing that this will work. In the case of that movie, it's like, you know, as soon as we hired David Fincher, it was a David Fincher movie, and he wasn't going to let anybody else have any kind of real participation. So it was very frustrating because I feel like that movie could have been better and more successful um, and certainly delivered at a lower cost than it had been, um, mostly because of Fincher's egotism. And, you know, he there are things that he does really well. I'm not going to deny that. Um, but I feel like he, uh, you know, the 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 perception of him is probably greater in terms of what, you know, of people's esteem than it deserves to be. Got it. Anything about Conan O'Brien you want to share for our audience that maybe they don't know that you've experienced that uh, something? You know, I think it's a couple things. First, I would say, like, if you haven't seen uh, Conan O'Brien Can't Stop, you really get the understanding of who he is as a person which is someone who has a certain amount of, you know, edge to him, which you don't necessarily fully see on television. But at the secondly, also what a genius he is. I mean, just going, I mean, I go to the show every week and I sit in the, I sit in the meeting that they have, you know, where they're going through the monologue and he's kind of warming up. And truly, if you could film that, you would have the greatest television show of all time. I mean, he's, and it, it's been that, it was that way. And it, notably, if you talk to anybody who ever worked with him on The Simpsons, they say he's the funniest person they've ever been around. He is funnier than anybody. And when you're around him in a, in a situation where he can be completely unleashed because there's no standards and practices and he can talk about whatever he want, I, I would defy anybody to find someone funnier than Conan. And then the second thing is, one thing that, and you'll know this well, people become famous they become powerful and they become rich. You get, you can't help it. You become surrounded. You're in a bubble of protection that keeps you from the truth. And people who, and most of those kinds of big stars end up, you know, doing what it was human to do, which is I want to hear the good news and I want people to agree with me. And so they surround themselves with those people and then they don't ever really understand what's truly going on and it usually leads to their demise. I've been fortunate enough to have his trust for a long time. And so I never, ever think something and don't say it. I tell him what I think. I've been wrong. I've been right. But, and this is a, a very, very kind of narrow perspective on what happens in the manager client relationship. Very few people ever really, who are in his position, ever allow that. And he does allow that. And that's why he's able to keep going. And be a great guy. So even if I if I tell him something he really doesn't want to hear, he he might push back at me, but he ultimately appreciates it. And the fact that he's been able to to keep himself centered and understand who he is as a person without becoming you know so egotistical that he can't hear uh, a contrary point of view, I think is a testimony to not only his career but him as a man. And I I truly 
truly respect him as much as anybody in the world. And uh, I, and like how I felt about my relationship with Larry David, I'm really grateful. I'm really grateful that he's allowed me to participate in that. Oh, I feel the same way about him and Larry. Tell me about your biggest disappointments or the toughest moment and what you learned from that biggest disappointment or your toughest moment. Well, you know, I mean, we're just talking about my business life. I think a lot of my disappointments are more personal than that, and I'm not going to talk about them. But I think in business, first of all, it's just that, like I was telling you, like that I was young and super successful and living my fantasies, you know, kind of being a rock star and then couldn't appreciate it. So filled with anger and insecurity that I had to be fighting and attacking everybody and never feel like anything was good enough rather than to say, hey, I'm 29 years old and I'm making a massive amount of money, more money than I was ever imagining that I would make and driving fancy cars and dating a lot of women and doing exactly like what a teenage boy would think that would be fun. But yet I, I still acted so much like a teenage boy that I couldn't appreciate it. And, you know, I know it's, it's just such a cliche, but the, the idea that youth is wasted on the young is so true. So now at 50, I look back and I go, what an asshole I was. And why couldn't I at least go, I wish I had a father or a Barry Katz who would say, Hey, why are you enjoying this? You're so angry. Why are you so angry and dissatisfied? Let's look at your life for a second. Who gets to live your life? You know, such a small group of people. And, and that, that's really my biggest disappointment is, is in myself, in my own inability to get out of my own way and get out of my own head and say, hey, this is great. Why don't I enjoy it and be happy? Because, you know, I also kind of felt like a lot of what made me successful was this anger and rage that I had. I had so much rage. And it's not true. I could have been equally as successful and maybe more successful, but I would have enjoyed it. I would have been better to other people. And, and maybe certain opportunities that I had been given uh, wouldn't have been wasted because I would have been able to appreciate them. Have you made the switch? And if you have made the switch from asshole and unappreciative guy and angry guy to less angry and more appreciative and spiritual guy, was there a moment where the switch happened? Yeah. Uh, no, there's a series of moments. I certainly... You know, Tom Shadiak had his moment, which was the accident that he yeah. had. What was your moment that well, turned Well, it's not you? a moment, but it's a progression of things where I had to go and look at myself and, and also just, uh, there's, you know, a lot of different things that had happened, but it really all kind of came to pass in the years after I was fired. I got into another lawsuit with UTA over, you know, them feeling like I wasn't holding to the settlement agreement and my continuing to be... Uh, and then suing them and back and forth and that. And that was very stressful at that particular point in time. And then, you know, I just, again, a couple different times, like, I mean, there was this one moment where this was in, I think, 2006. So it wasn't even that long ago, but where I was, a, I played a lot of poker and uh, you I, were in the World Series of Poker. Well, anybody can be in the World Series of Poker. Any idiot shows up with money, they can be in the World Series of Poker. But I was playing poker at a casino and you know, I still had that kind of anger thing going. And uh, I think I had some guy had said something to me I didn't like, and I stood up and said, let's go out in the parking lot and fight and, or whatever. And I would do that a couple of times and they were going to throw me out of the casino. It was so, there was a moment there where I kind of got outside myself and thought, what, this is ridiculous. You know, I mean, that's embarrassing. And 
I thought, I got to get in control of this, you know, and uh, I started just thinking more about my life, you know, that I thought I had gotten through that, but I really hadn't. And I think over since then, you know, in the, in the eight years or nine years since that moment, I, I really started thinking about me, thinking about what life means, thinking about what's important to me. I really have let go of any anger that I had that probably stemmed from my childhood. And I really wake up in the morning and think, I am so lucky to be able to do basically whatever I want to do. And I'm so lucky to be able to pass on associations or projects or business ventures or anything that I don't want to do and be able to continue forward with my relationship with Conan or my relationship with other people that I had represented over time and make, make the choice of doing exactly what I want to do. And very few people are allowed to do that in life. And I think, and I'm so lucky to be able to do that. And I'm, and you know, something that you even brought up, I mean, I, I maintain perspective and I gain perspective and I don't let go of it. So a really good friend of mine died a little under two years ago and of cancer. And he's such, he was such a good guy. And I, I, you know, in, he, I mean, he was a great father and everybody loved him. And, you know, then I look at me and I go, I'm in superior health and I continue on. And it just showed that to me that there isn't, I don't believe, you know, you said like that I'm spiritual. I'm not spiritual. Like I don't believe there's any plan. I don't think there's anything metaphysical out there. I feel like I've just have had uh, a lot of good fortune and why, cause it just, life isn't fair. Like why him? He's, everybody liked him. Why would he leave his, why would he have to die? And his, his, you know, kids are left without a father. And I think about that kind of stuff and it causes me to say, you know, I don't want to lose sight of being appreciative of that. And when I see, uh, you know, a news report about an accident or Ebola or something else, to me, it's the same way that like you, you, you gain some perspective from, you know, that disabled kid seeing that there's worse, there's kids that are more disabled. That doesn't mean I don't get frustrated in traffic, but it means that I stop myself and say, why don't I just zoom out a little bit and see what I have? And I, I can't, I don't really know anybody who's as lucky as I am. I think. Proudest moment professionally. Well, unquestionably, that's being here on the, you know, <laughs> your show. I mean, the fucking industry standard. That's the pinnacle. I don't know what I'm going to be able to do after this and be satisfied. <laughs> well, you don't, you said you don't do anything you don't want to do. So the fact that you came here, I'm just so honored that you actually came here. No, that is really true. And I, I you know, one of the, the articles that I've written uh, that people really respond to is the article I wrote about doing people favors. And, you know, I kind of don't really want to do them anymore. I also think because it's just, I, I, you know, and this doesn't only relate to my business career, really relates more to my personal life, but I don't lie. I'm not going to lie to anybody. Not because I feel like I owe it to somebody else. I owe it to, because when you lie, you create some kind of weight that you then carry forward with you. And so for me to say, okay, I'm going to go do that thing for you that I don't really want to do and I resent you for it is a lie. That'd be a lie. And I, it doesn't mean that I, you want to, you like every part of it. I didn't like sitting in the lobby down there waiting for your assistant to come get me or any of the things that just happen, like with parking or whatever, you know I mean? I, I, every, I'm just like anybody else in that way. But the truth is, it's like there was my coming to do your show was about the fact that I appreciate you, Barry, because you've always been 
a really good person to me. And like when I've written an article that you've liked, you've told me about it. And that when we work together very in any limited sense or like, you know, on with Jay on seeing other people or what anything else, I have only enjoyed our interaction and respected you. And I can say that about a very small number of people. So therefore, giving the, getting the opportunity or being asked to do something is, is flattering. And then I want to do it. I wanted to be here and I wouldn't have otherwise. I appreciate it. Before the last question, I just have to share this with you. This is the only time this has happened. I just want, and it, it's probably a circumstance of security, whatever. The phone rings, mm-hmm. okay, and around, I'd say, 11.05 or 11.06 from security downstairs. Uh, we have a Mr. Gavin Pallone here to see you. I tell the assistant he's here. Go down and get him. He says, great. Just let me press print on this thing. Take it out of the printer. Literally, as he's walking out the door, the phone rings. I'm with him. He's wrapping it up. He's mm-hmm. going. The phone rings again. He comes back and he answers it. Uh, yeah, yes, I'll be right down. So whether somebody downstairs didn't do their job or the fact is, but I thought to myself, Gavin is really honest, really persuaded. He's going to make a phone call in two minutes if he doesn't get somebody down there immediately to get him. And I thought that was really and and that that to me said how you want to be treated in business and how everybody should be treated in business. And when you mentioned that, I want to apologize. I'll tell you why I'm apologizing. Because I contemplated one of the first times ever, I contemplated having one of my assistants down at the security desk to meet you because I knew you were the kind of guy that you live your life in perfection in so many different lanes and you want perfection for your clients. And I thought, what would he want if if Conan were in the lobby or if Larry was in the lobby? Would he want somebody to greet them? And I thought to myself, well, part of him would say he wouldn't want to go all out because they'd feel uncomfortable, but maybe he would. So I was going back and forth, and they decided against it, and I was wrong. No, you, you really misinterpreted it. Here's what happened. <laughs> I, I, show, I hate being late, and I'm mad at myself. So I get here, and I get to the lobby, and I walk to the elevator, and it's 11.03, and I'm supposed to be here at 11. So I'm angry with myself at this point that I'm here at 11.03 and I get into the elevator and then the guard comes and he says, excuse me, you have to check in. So I'm like, fuck. This you is know? high in Saban's building here. You got to have a lot of security. I don't even remember. I didn't really look at what my assistant read, which says you have to check in. So I just went right to the elevator. I'm standing in the elevator and the guy pulls me out of the elevator <laughs> and I have to walk back and I give him my information and he dealt with, no, he dealt with another woman who did the same thing first. So I'm now waiting. Now it's 11.05. <laughs> so I'm even more of an asshole and I'm thinking like Barry said this and so I felt like I was letting you down and then I figure okay now it's 11.05 can I go up now please take a seat (laughs) fuck so it was like by the time your assistant got there it's 11.09 and I don't blame anybody else I'm just angry with myself like I expect more from myself I should have been in your office at 11 o'clock I shouldn't have been in the lobby at 11.03 and I shouldn't have been waiting I shouldn't have waited for your assistant until 11.09 because I just felt like I let you down so it's really me just getting down on myself ask me if I care I can tell that you can't, you don't care, but I was, I probably, I am my assistant saying I'm sitting in the lobby or something like that. And then that flipped her out and then she probably made the phone call. But And and that's a metaphor again of somebody like yourself, of your stature, who's, who's twisting your insides into a balloon animal over something that somebody like myself 
I mean, you have to believe that I could give a shit whether you're five or ten minutes late. I know, but I... Why it, do you drive yourself crazy like that? Because I, I have a standard for myself, you know, and it's like, I want to be honest, I want to be on time, I want to be civil, I want to do the best I can at the things that I do. Do you know what I mean? And that's the stuff that gives me a certain amount of satisfaction. If I feel like I did a good job, if I feel like I came to do the industry standard and I, you know, I put out in that way and I respect the people. Here's a good example. When I, anytime I, you know, since I go to Conan show, for instance, last night they, 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 uh, taped a piece uh, with Jake Gyllenhaal that'll then be in another episode. And he showed up and he, you know, you, when you're on, you're, you've done this a lot of times and you're sitting in the green room and he just brought it, you know, he thought about what he's going to say and he really put it together and he just nailed it. And then you see, you know, and people who are successful and then you also see people who show up and they don't really seem to have any idea what they're going to do. And they don't seem to put a lot of energy in it because they want to protect themselves to make it seem like they're not really trying or, or, or whatever. And I really respect the people who do what Jake Gyllenhaal did. Um, or, you know, a lot of people who are the real pros in this business who doesn't really matter how much fucking success, you know, uh, you know, they've, they said they've had over time that they really go for it, you know, and that's, that's, that's the thing I really respect about Conan, you know, or you look at, or getting back to Larry David, I mean, he's doing a stage show now. The guy clearly doesn't need any money. He clearly doesn't need any more accolades. He's not a kid. And he is going to put forth every ounce of energy and drive and intelligence that he has into whatever he's doing. And those are the people that I really admire in life. And so I want to be like that. And so if I show up three minutes late, I'm pissed. Got it. Which leads to the last question, a great segue. What advice do you have the person listening out there in the world that's maybe in a studio apartment living with their dad after divorce? Are you in the studio apartment thing? What else? What is the studio apartment like? Is there a hot plate or do they have a kitchen? I you love know, mentioning I, that because there's a community. Do they have a twin bed or is there like a queen size bed in the studio apartment? Because you have this vision that your people who listen to you are in studio apartments. I think there's some guy living in a four bedroom house. He has a wife and two kids. <laughs> maybe he's in the business. Maybe he wants to be in the business. Why are they all in the studio? Studio apartment. So depressing, Barry. All right. What do you say? To I the, feel like I'm talking to, to that guy in the four bedroom house. What not, do you not the say to the guy who's living in the palatial mansion that isn't doing what he wants to do? <laughs> Here's what I'm saying, because no, I'm, I'm in that same situation. But what advice do you have for somebody who needs to, who wants to get to the next level, wants to have the kind of career you've had, but doesn't exactly know how to do it or how to get there what advice would you give to somebody in the circumstance to experience the kind of life that you've had that you feel that you're blessed truthfully i this is something i thought a lot about and it goes back to your point of view about my having done a lot of different things which is basically don't be afraid to fail you know there's been so many different times where i've tried to do a lot of different things you know like i've acted in more things than just that and i'm I promise. I actually do think I'm good in action, but in the other stuff, I'm so bad. But in the end, even my failing as in in whatever endeavor, like being an actor and seeing myself on screen and thinking, "Ooh, I stink," or whatever, it gave me that gave me something else. So now I decided I wanted to start directing a couple of years ago. I've directed ten episodes of TV. I'll probably be directing a few more TV shows soon. And do you then, negotiate your own deals? You know, I I now no, I have a lawyer, but I have. Uh, <laughs> I have, I, I don't have an agent, but I do, you know, I have a couple of movies I want to get going on, but the truth is all those experiences of acting, like even having, you know, Ted Demi or, or, or Chris Thompson in that instance, or other directors I've worked with interact with me 
has let me think about what it's like to be the actor. And it's helped me in how I communicate with actors because I've done that. All of the stuff that I've written, a lot of the things that where I've written these magazine articles, when you get back, you know, go back and now I've done about 60. But, you know, in the beginning, it's like, dude, I've never done this before. And you go for it and it gives you confidence, but it also has a lot of these things that I've written are personal. So it gives me a little more perspective on me. I learn a little bit about myself. I've learned about other people because I've had to interview people or do some kind of reporting. Everything that I've gone for, whether it's succeeded or failed, has given me something. I think people are too afraid to fail. And, and so like if you get the idea that you want to change careers – you know, and maybe there's a financial reason why you can't do it, but maybe there's not, you know, really think about it. What's, what's the downside go, what's the downside if I really try? And then what's the downside if I don't try? And often the downside of my not trying is having to live with a question. Could I have tried, could I have done that? And I think that's worse. So, you know, whoever you are, even if you're a guy who's in that terrible studio apartment is in the valley somewhere. Uh, valley Village. It's in Valley Village. Well, I think Valley Village. Lower nice. Attleboro, Massachusetts. Something like that. You know, you're in that place, the hot plate shorted out. You, you know, <laughs> you're going to have to go down to the uh, AMPM mini market and get one of those two hot dogs for a dollar thing. Why not, if you Grape think to yourself, you know, I want to be a writer, write that screenplay. Or I want to be a director, make a little movie with your phone. Or or whatever it is you do. Or you want to change careers, take a step down and go do that. Or get some education to get it done. And, you know, I personally can tell you that as a producer, I, most of the things I've ever done have failed. As a, as a representative of talent, you know, we're talking about, we just talked about all the people that I have that are successful. There's a lot of people I represented who weren't successful, but I believed in them and I gave it my best shot. I certainly failed in a lot of ways. I was successful as an agent, but I failed as an agent because I couldn't get out of my own way. I think uh, a lot of that could be said to my, my career as a producer, but I, I, didn't weigh me down. I didn't say, oh, I failed this time or I failed that time. I kind of just took the experience and moved on. And I think it's made me better. Awesome. This has been incredible. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Was I better you. than Sandy Grusha? <laughs> what are you guys? Come on. No? They I'm, weren't here it? for Sandy Grusha, probably. Yeah, but they listened to it. Grusha was better. We could ask Grusha. Yeah. Well, he's available. Go ask him. He's not doing anything. <laughs> <laughs> Call him right now. Click. Hey, how's it going, Barry? He's right there. <laughs> you are so, so cold. Everybody hates Sandy. Oh, Jesus. Are you listening, Sandy? <laughs> Do they all? Is that true? Well, he fucked me over a few times. <laughs> I can get away with that. But you fucked people over. Me? I don't think I fucked people over. I don't know, maybe. If anyway. I do, I apologize. <laughs> well, we have a cleansing here today. So yeah. thank you so much. This has thank been you. amazing. This has been one of the greatest episodes I can ever remember. And people are going to get a lot out of this because you've done so many different things and you have such a great perspective. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And if you like the show, please t tell all your friends. And if you don't like the show, tell all your friends. <laughs> They say it's the glory I'll scream your name Put you on shoulders Walk you to fame You'll get all the money Drop that fancy car All the people love you Cause you're going for Life is for the dreamer 
they have all to gain. It's never quite over till it all feels the same. You pick your own poison, dig your own grave down in the valley. A fortune. Thank you for listening to Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of new episodes, which will be available for download every Monday, or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to BarryKatz.com. Before you leave, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it blows. Thank you for your support, and have a great day.